delighted you've come on. You've come a hell of a long way from where you once were, and you've been in the Daily Mail recently, Lad Bible, Unilad, all the big media outlets for your, your successful journey, where you once were to where you are now. You now are, I mean, you've, to, to just to very, very briefly summarize, and we're going we're gonna to fill in the, the massive gap in between. You've gone from a heroin addict with an almighty habit to a now successful podcast host doing work for charity, giving back, helping others, making sure your cup is so overflowing that you can give back. You can quench other people's thirst with your generosity. And I love that. Yeah, thank you. So let's take it right back to the start. And I believe this is the first time you've you've given your full story on a podcast, yeah, yeah. which is really, really nice for me to do because I've only had a few people I can do that with and that they're the ones I enjoy the most. And I think there's a great exchange of value because it's like, it's therapy, it's counseling. And we take it right back to the start and people that are watching this, they'll be able to relate, if not to all of it, to some bits, to parts of your journey, to a decade here, to a few years there. It's going to help a lot of people. So first and foremost, where are you from? Well, thank you, Liam, first of all. Um, for the introduction. Uh, I'm from Cardiff, uh, capital city of Wales, um, from an area called Fairwater or Pentrabing, kind of the same area. Um, typical council estate, uh, loving family. My mother and father have always been there for me. Um, yeah, uh, my, my childhood was, I've always said this, I, I've always had fond memories of my childhood. You know, when I went further down the line, and went down those those depths of addiction. I always looked back and tried to dig for trauma, try and find out, well, what was it? You know, because you meet other addicts who have had some horrific lives and you think, oh, my life wasn't that bad. Why am I doing this? So my, my, my childhood was great, you know. Um, my father was the coach of our rugby team, our football team, our baseball team in the summer. You know, he was like the, kind of like the father figure of my age. Uh, to all my mates, you know, he was our, he was like the big dad, like, you know, he would drive us around in a mini, he had a mini bus, he used to work for like the naughty kids in the schools. So like the kids who, and I was one of them, those kids who couldn't engage in mainstream education, he would pick them up in the mini bus and he'd take them to like the music studio, uh, bricklaying, take them down the beach, you know, these type of things. So in his spare time, obviously he had the mini bus, he would take us all in a, in a mini bus and we'd go wherever for the weekend, you know? Um, so my childhood was was great. Um, I'm doing a lot of counseling, re literally now, and I'm peeling back things that I've probably skipped over uh, telling my story when I do public talking and stuff. But I've learned a lot lately that kind of gives me the answer to why I've gone down the road I've gone. When I was when I was very young, I lived with my, my grandmother for like the, like the first year, I would say. I was always there. Uh, my mum had PTSD when she first had me, um, and I lived with my grandmother. She only lived around the corner, but she, I kind of remember those memories quite a lot. And then um, the other thing in my childhood was, although my mother and father were everything for me, they gave me everything. I had an uncle, my father's brother, who was like chalk and cheese with my dad. Um, he went to jail uh, for murder, death by dangerous drive it was actually. Um, he was 15 at the time, 1996, you know, joyriding's at the highest of heights. 
And uh, he was with a few of his mates one night drinking. Uh, he was going to see his girlfriend in Kafili, which is on the outskirts of Cardiff. And uh, he's, 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 he's took a girl and a little boy over the bonnet. The boy had severe injuries. The girl died. Um, his mates fled. He was the only one who stayed. He was very naive, had a lot of problems. Um, he stayed. Uh, she died in his arms. So growing up in school, although I had this sheltered childhood, the dinner ladies, the teachers, uh, people who didn't really know me or my family, when they knew my surname was Mace, oh, that's, that's Auntie Mace's family. He's a Mace, he's a Mace. And I always remember that as a kid, like I would get judged for my surname. And the other thing I'd hear quite a lot of is they'd call my uncle a kiddie killer. Now, when I think of kiddie killers, I think of Ian Huntley, you know, these type of dreadful, sadistic pedophiles, rapists, murderers. Purposeful. Purposeful, you know. We probably all know someone who's, who's, who's um, gone in a car and drink driving and, and killed someone on accident. And, and that's all he was. And he, he was a kid himself. So although I had this like great childhood, um, I used to remember once a week, we used to go up to like Portland jail, Exeter, um, Park. We, we, we travel all around the country to visit my uncle. And I, I remembered it vividly, you know? Um, and I was always like, why can't he come on with us? And every time he would come, he would always have like a black eye or, you know, he was always in the wars, like when he was in there, you know? Um, so that, that, that stuck by me. But because it, it's important to know, because it plays a big part into my journey of addiction later on. Although he went to prison for that, like I remember having visits and my, my, my nan, my father, always saying, just tell us who it was. Tell us who it was. We'll get you out of here. Basically saying that it wasn't him driving, but he never, ever grasped anyone up. And he'd done the time himself. I think he'd done eight years. Um, and I looked up to him. You know, I, I think, you know, where I'm from and most council estate lads, if you, if, if you had or you've been to jail, you know, it's a bit of a reputation. You look up to these people. And because I knew the truth, you know, that this was an accident, what happened, I, I kind of looked up to him for a bit. It was, it was a different world to me going there on the weekends and, and seeing him, you know? So that, 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 that was there. And then growing up into like uh, high school and stuff, um, I started to notice I was a bit different. Now, in the sense where on face value, I wasn't, everyone was, think I was overconfident. You know, I got on with everyone. I didn't, didn't really, I had a set of friends who were my dyad friends, but I would hang around with everyone. You know, I'd hang around with the moshers. I'd hang around with the gay kids. I'd hang around with the smokers. I'd hang around with the sports lads. And I hated bullies. I hated bullies as well. Like, you know, I, 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 I was always for the underdog, you know? And I was anti-drugs because of my uh, uncle, like my father, He's never smoked a fag in his life. He has a drink on the weekends, but my family were anti-drugs. That was distilled in me from a young age because of my uncle. Um, so like year seven, eight and nine in high school for me was, uh, I was, you know, knuckled down. You know, I was a bit of a class clown, but I never went on the knock, never smoked weed, never smoked fags, didn't drink. Uh, and all my other mates did. And then it kind of turned around for me in like year nine, uh, year 10 and 11. So when I say like I was a bit different, what it was, was I was very attached to my family. Like didn't want to, didn't want to leave them. 
my mum and dad say to this day that like on my estate where I lived, there was a field across the road and they'd say I'd come back every 20 minutes, you know, and they'd be like, we're not going nowhere, Carl, because I used to think that they were going to leave me. And I don't, like looking back at this counseling I do when I'm now, like I think it's because in my life, my mother and there's a few others in my life that kind of just left me. My mother didn't leave me, but you know, I lived with my grandmother at a young age and it was always looking back now at what I've been doing, there's this pattern and I was very attached. So um, anxiety for me was a big, big thing, massive. And um, it morphed, sorry, go on. Do you think, was that separation anxiety? I think it was, yeah. Because my dad was a taxi driver in the nights and I couldn't go to sleep without him home. Um, if I wanted to sleep over any of the boys' houses, I was ringing my mum at nine o'clock saying, I got a bad belly, oh, I need to come home. You know, any sleepovers were over my house. You know, I'd have five, six boys over my house sleeping, you know, after football on a Saturday, stay over type of thing, you know? So, you know, I still had that like relationship with sleepovers, but it was always at my house. I would never stay over any of this. And, 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 and the time it really hit home for me was in year seven, went to Lang Granog, which is like a, you know, with a school. And we got up there and I started crying, you know, in, in, uh, in like the, the playroom where there was like pool tables and that. I started crying and I went in, I remember going into the office, ringing my mum and dad saying, I want to come home, I want to come home and all. And they were just looking at me like, why is he crying? What a shit house. Um, but that, that, yeah, I think it was separation anxiety. I always thought something bad was going to happen to my loved ones. So what I did was I, I, I developed, um, they were, it's, it's OCD, they call it, you know, and when we, we were speaking earlier, when people think of OCD, they think, oh, you're a clean freak. <laughs> well, it's not the case all the time. There are other avenues at bay, really. And uh, my OCD was making sure that things were in place so my family were okay or something bad wouldn't happen to my loved ones or myself. So I'd wear certain things, I'd walk certain routes, I touch certain things. I'd, you know, make sure that, you know, you, you get the classic ones. You know, people say, oh yeah, I got OCD. I got to have even numbers. They were just embedded in me. Like that, that wasn't even something I would even uh, have to think about. That was natural, mm. you know, even numbers, volumes, uh, trainers, light switches, everything in fours and sixes, like you said, or that even number. They, they, they come, they, they happen now, like, that's just natural. But then there would be other ones that would come into play, depending on the situation. Like, for example, um, if my mother and father went away for the weekend, you know, my anxiety is through the roof. Hmm. So, you know, where I could be walking down the shop and then like something in my head, I say, you've got to walk around that lamppost and you've got to do a roly-poly on the bank. Otherwise, they're going to die. They're going to die in a plane crash. Just mad shit. But this is, this was something I couldn't control. And... I think around like 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, mental health has always been there. So we've all, you know, it's always been something. It's not been spoke about as a free. No, no, exactly. And I wasn't going to the doctors to say, I'm doing roly polies on the main road. Like, you know, I wasn't going to do that. Yeah, and my mates used to laugh, like they made a joke of it. I, I, I've said it before. Uh, we were getting chased by the police one time, me and the boys, and uh, I missed the lamppost. And I had to go back and touch the lamppost. Mm. And the boys were like, what's he doing? And my best mate who knew me, you know, what my rich, he went, oh, he's, 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 he's missed the lamppost. And the coppers looking at me like, 
Is he coming back? Like, I, literally, I was getting chased by the police. And because I, I missed a lamppost, I had to go back and touch it. And um, yeah, it was something I had to do, you know, and, and you get counseling now and they go, well, have you ever tried not to do it? And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? It's like, it's like I don't want to have that unknown feeling if something does happen. It's kind of, it's kind of similar to like, uh, if you're doing the lottery, imagine you do the lottery every day, every week you do the lottery, same numbers. And in that one week you don't do it and your numbers come in. You'd be fucking devil, wouldn't you? I just want to make like, it's just in case for me. I think that's kind of what it is. And another thing I kind of think it is as well is this, it, uh, a way to describe it. It's like karma. It's you do this and that will happen. You know, uh, that's and you're kind making of the up, game. You're making up the game and the rules in your own mind. If yeah. I do that, if I do that, that will be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's bizarre. Um, when I when I in the summer we used to play baseball. So in in Wales. We call baseball, it's not American baseball. British baseball um, is a dying sport now, but it was a big sport in Wales, in, Car in the Dock City. So Cardiff, Newport in Wales, and then Liverpool and Birkenhead. These were massive uh, areas that played British baseball. Um, I, I capped Wales. I went up to Liverpool, played played against England in that base one. Um, but when I played baseball, I used, I, used to bite, I used to bite the bat with my teeth and I'd do it four times. Before I, before the guy would throw the ball, Caref and the voice you carefully, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, everyone was like, "What the fuck is this guy?" But everyone just knew. My mates knew. My mum and dad knew, and like, I think my mum and dad just didn't want to like admit that I had this fucking problem. They just thought it was just fucking weird, like you know, because we 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 don't like to think our you know we think our kids are perfect, don't we? And they you know they didn't refer me to a, a doctor's to say you need to sort this out. It was just something I shrugged off at the time, uh, you know? So yeah, that, 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 that was that was there massively uh, at a young age. And then um, I suppose like every everywhere in, in Britain, you know, everyone's smoking weed. All my mates are smoking weed. I feel a bit left out, you know? So I tried smoking weed one day and, uh, you know, my mum and dad, like I said, they were very, it's funny because my mum and dad were so against drugs. This is why I feel for them. They've done their best to protect me from drugs. And I became a smackhead. You know, it's, that's why I say to parents, like, you know, don't, don't tell your kids he can't do this, he can't do that. Because all my other mates whose mothers didn't really care if they smoked weed, they've got mortgages, they've got, you know, they're successful. You know, I was the one who went down it, even though my mum and dad did everything for me. You know, whatever I wanted, I had if not the, 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 you know, second best. Are they still together now? They're still together now. And they were solid back when you were solid. young? Solid. What, you said your mum had PTSD? You know when like people have babies and they just go fucking... Uh, Postnatal depression. Yes, that's the one. And she couldn't hold me. Oh, so, okay, so she had postnatal depression. Yes, okay, sorry, right. man. <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to connect those. When you said she had PTSD, I was thinking, okay. Something didn't happen to what, her, no. Did trauma pass through your mum to you? That's but, but yeah, when she had me, she just said, I couldn't, I just couldn't hold you. And she obviously, you know, she was there for me, but I spent a lot of time down with my grandmother's. And I never, like I said, it's only doing this counseling lately he said, that's not even a big deal, but it's the other times it happened as well, that they've all come together and they've built this monster up in you of worrying about people leaving you or not leaving you, but losing people. So yeah, that, that, that was that. And then I started smoking weed and straight away with OCD, addictive personality, I fucking loved it. 
And I and, and straight away it took away heart, you know, a lot of those anxieties. So I got really addicted really quickly. Uh to, to smoke, the yeah, smoking weed. Yeah. To, and how old was you? This is like 16. So still at school? Yeah, still at school. Like it's like two years left in high school. So, you know, I always got told this growing up. Year seven, eight, and nine, mess around. Year nine, uh, 10 and 11, knuckle down GCSEs. But mine was the other way around. I was like a good kid when all my mates were fucking around. And then when they knuckled down for GCSEs, I went off the radar. I started going on the knock, you know, not going to school. And then that's when I ended up going on the minibuses to the music studios because they just couldn't fucking deal with me. What, like, what happened was I got so obsessed with weed like you know I, I ended up being the kid who would have one puff of a spliff and you know a couple of chewing gums spray oh, my mum's gonna kill me to be in the biggest weed head on my estate and you know honing in my playstations and selling my clothes so, for weed. For weed oh so you was doing you was doing that for weed yeah. I mean, normally you'd, you'd associate selling your belongings to exactly. get exactly your, your fix for smack for physical things yeah physical yeah. withdrawals who introduced you to weed just the boys, like, just the boys on the estate, like, I couldn't eat, uh, some older, some my age, some of them have been smoking weed since day one, you know, come on, call up a puff, and I never did, you know, it, so when I say introduce, it was always around me, I just, you know, if someone's smoking a fag, I take it out and say, stop smoking that, you little mug, mm. you know, I was, and then when I did try it, I fucking loved it, um, but it got to a point where I abused it that much, that the reason I took it in the first place to take away all these uh, worries ended up being the reason why I had to stop taking it. Because anything you abuse, mm. it, it'll come to back to bite you on the ass. And I was smoking weed that much that it ended up making me paranoid. So I'd have a puff and fucking, I remember one time I fucking, my dad was like, I just left school. He went, right, you're gonna get a fucking job. You're gonna fucking make a CV. You go into town and you're gonna put fucking CVs everywhere. I got on the bus stop. I had the CVs. As I'm waiting on the bus, like I looked in my pocket, I had half a spliff. I went, oh, I'll have a puff of that. Two drags. I don't even remember what I did. I never went in any shops. I got to town, just walked around for a couple of, for, for like an hour. So everyone was watching me and wanted to kill me. Went home. He said, did you do your CVs? I went, yeah. I never give one CV in. And I knew then, fuck, I can't do this weed, mate. It really fucking winged me out. How long do you think, I mean, I, I concur. Totally. I find that a lot of people that are solid weed smokers, if you criticize weed or you object huh. or you even put your own negative experience to them, they will defend it as if it's oh, their family. Mate. It's like it's it's a substance. It's it's not it's not a relative, it's not a friend, it's just a substance. I'm telling you, it made me have the most severe anxiety and yeah. panic attacks, and you're defending it like I'm talking about your mum. It's bizarre. Do you find that? Oh mate, I, I done the lad Bible interview and um I said on there that weed was a gateway for me. Fucking hell, mate. Weed isn't a gateway drug. How dare you? Weed, weed. I'm not saying weed is the gateway drug. I'm saying it was for me. What I'm, what I'm, you know, and you get all these like, you know, uh, legalized cannabis people calling me an idiot and all that because I've said weed was a gateway. I'm not saying that everyone who smokes weed is on heroin. But everyone on heroin started on weed. Mark my words. Mm. I did. Uh, you know, and, you know, even before, like, you know, yeah, I didn't even drink before the weed, really. 
Weed was like the first thing for me. I, I do, I do, I do get that. And obviously I work in substance misuse services as well. And people just think cannabis is, it, you know, it's harmless. Well, no, it fucks a lot of people up, mate. Just so you know, weed, puff, solid, rocky, soap bar, yeah. all of them. That was my gateway to heavier drugs as well. Yes. And I also had the same experience you did. Severe mind-altering experiences just off weed where people think it's, 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 it's absolutely harmless yeah. and they defend it like it's one of their own children. My personal experience is the same as yours. It absolutely fried my brain yeah, yeah. really badly and it got me onto the, the next drug, then the next drug, then, exactly. then the next drug. But I do know people that have smoked weed for 20, 30 years and they've never had the same experience of paranoia. But, yeah, know, not the paranoia. Do you remember when it came on you the very first oh, time? Oh, mate, it's the fucking worst feeling ever. I thought everyone in my, I thought everyone I've done wrong in my life were in my local community center coming to kill me. And I genuinely believed that. I, I, and I remembered again, years down the line, I was doing a heroin rattle in Northampton in my grandmother's and I had a, a puff. And again, I thought everyone in Kettering knew I was there and they were coming to kill me. And I thought, fuck this. Mm. I, ain't, I ain't smoking weed again. And even these people who have smoked it for years, you see some of them now and they say, oh, I wish I didn't start me because my head's fried. Mm. Some of them do. And I get you get these people who are just immune to it. And I think fair play to you, I wish I was. But um, no, I, I, I've seen a lot of mates change from weed. Fucking like their heads are fried. I'm, I, even lost, though, lost their ambition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though I, I, I went on to heavier stuff, I feel I'm more sane than some of them because it was just pure weed all the way along. Hmm. People will kill me for this, mate. I'm telling you. But Oh, I know they will. But this is your story. Yeah. Not I'm, I'm exactly. I'm seeing how it was for me. And you can't, if something makes you feel a certain way, no one can argue with how you feel. And if something makes you feel anxious and scared, let's have it right. The first time that weed turns on you, it's frightening. Mm. It's scary. You feel, you, you become that little boy again, that scared child, and you just want someone That's help That's exactly me. what it is. Someone man. help me. And, and, it, and, it, and it stays here for ages. Years. And then everything you do afterwards, it sort of reminds you of that feeling. Yeah. You get a hangover, that withdrawal. Yeah, yeah. It makes you feel anxious. You go on to amphetamine, you come down off that, you feel like it's, it yeah. all brings it back to that horrible, distorted, disturbing feeling of paranoia and, yeah. and loss yeah. of control of your mind. Scary. Yeah. If you can avoid ever doing it, yeah, yeah. Don't I, do I, it. I would say to people like, and, and especially in this day and age, look at the weed now. It ain't even, you know, when I started, I know you're a bit older, so I won't, I won't. But, you know, it was always lab. It was always rock, you know, like- um, Rocky. Rocky, yeah. yeah. See, I, I reference Rocky. Yeah, I'm yeah. not that old. People always say, well, Rocky. <laughs> it was Rocky, you know? When I started, I had like the best of both worlds. Like Bud was coming. We yeah. had like K2, Blue Cheese, Northern Lights. Northern these, Lights. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Purple Haze. You know, all these. But yeah. now you get these people, right? And it's, you're hearing stories of people actually clucking from it because of the chemicals they're putting in it. So if anyone's just starting out, you know, you see these, anything that's got bright lights on a packet ain't good for you, mate. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what you're seeing. So for me, it, it started to fucking have a bad effect on me. But because I knew that something I could take took away something for however long it was, I looked for the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for other things. And this is kind of where my story 
took a turn for the worse because it all happened so quick for me. And people used to be like, they couldn't believe that I, I became a heroin addict because so you know, it was only a year and a half ago, I was a normal kid. Yeah, so smoking weed at 16, then in the space of 18 months, it escalated yeah. enormously. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was um, I started uh, drinking, taking pills, Valium, pre-gabs. Pills, ecstasy. I'd say anything really. That weed kind of gave me the, uh, the go-ahead to say, okay, I can take stuff. Do you, yeah. remember, do you remember the order, how, how it went? From, from weed, what was the next drug that you experimented weed with? Weed was the very first thing, right? You're not going to believe it when I say it. It was weed, right? Then, then it was drinking and a bit of Coke. Then it was um, crack. I tried crack. Stayed away from it then. Then it was ecstasy. I took ecstasy a few times, but I was always scared I was, when people say I'm crazy, but like ketamine, I've never taken because I'm really scared of those drugs. And they say, well, you take heroin, but you wouldn't take ketamine. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, 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 was, it was weed, drink and coke, crack, then it was ecstasy. And then all the other things, you know, all the, all the, the Valiums, the pre-gabs, the downers. That's you, what you done that in quick succession because I, I remember the f smoking something's one thing yeah. because back when I was younger, that there would be adverts marketing and championing people smoking Marlboro cigarettes, getting off yeah, their yeah, horse. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was yeah. it was glamorized. So smoking didn't seem like a big thing, but the thought of actually snorting something that seemed like it was a it was it was a big yeah. big thing. It was big league. That's really taking drugs. Smoking yeah. a spliff, you think? It's well, nothing, yeah. smoking, smoking, sniffing something that's heavy duty. But you went straight from smoking weed. Then the next one was bam fifty. Five pound note hanging out your nose. Ten. Yeah, yeah, it was, but it, but, but I never ever bought a gram of, I, like, and people probably won't believe me. I never bought a gram of sniff. I just had a lot of cheeky line off someone. It wasn't like I was sniffing flat out all night on a bender. And uh, during that time as well, um, I was still smoking weed whilst I tried the cocaine. Like the paranoia bit came to a bit of a crash. Um, like I'd say halfway through smoking weed, I started drinking. And then I tried the cocaine. And then when I had that proper bad paranoia on the uh, the weed, that's when I went to the downers, like Valium and other stuff. But halfway through, yeah, I tried it. But I, do you know what I was? We'd, play, we'd have a youth game, a rugby game on a Saturday. And all the boys, we'd go back to the pub. They'd all chip in three ways on a gram of sniff. I'd go up with a bag of weed. So I'm drinking, but I'm in the beer garden smoking weed. Mm -hmm. And they're in the toilet sniffing. I was always a downer. Always a downer kind of guy. And they're very different vibes, in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in the garden with the old fucking people smoking weed and they were in the fucking toilets, fucking bashing up, having keys and stuff. We're very different. I always loved my downers. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was that. And then just to go over to the crack biff quickly, you know, I was young when I tried crack as well. And um, I'm doing a documentary on it now. Like uh, I've actually been co-producing it with the BBC. You know, I got my opinions on the BBC, but the fact that they're willing to platform it is why I'm doing it. Um, but it's about the rise of crack use in working class and middle class areas. Where I'm from, like your average builder is piping on the weekends. Ex if you sniff, you, you smoke crack. Yeah, exp explain what crack is. So crack is, um, it's cocaine. It, it, it's in a different form. So it's in a smokable form. 
and it's just a process of washing it back with either bicarbonate soda, ammonia, these type of things that you put in it to turn it into a rock form to be able to smoke it. So I'd buy a I'd buy a wrap of cocaine. I'd buy a grams. I've got right, so I've got a gram of, of, of cocaine in powder format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I turn that into an into a rock? So I'd use a spoon to burn it on. So you've got the co so you've got the spoon. Yeah, you've got the cocaine. I'm not trying to teach anyone yet. Um, you've got the spoon, cocaine on the spoon, bit of water, start burning it, add the bicarb, keep burning it till it all bubbles up. And then you get like a, a knife, a butter knife, see, and just start whipping it. And what'll happen is slowly it will form into like a white rock and you draw, it, there'll still be fluids in it, like water, but you're burning the water out of it basically and the other chemicals. And then it'll dry up. You can either dry it on tissue or on the edge of the, the, the butter knife that you've got. It will just start to, to congeal and turn into rock form and you smoke that. So yeah, not that you're, you weren't teaching people start smoking crack right. beer and make rocks. But what that will, will do, it will help people that suspect somebody could be smoking crack. They're the signs you need to look out for. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's just, you know, Spoon, if you're doing a- Spoons on the side, burnt spoon on yeah, the side. Yeah, oh yeah. If you see a spoon in this black, people think straight away it's heroin, like but it's not just soda. heroin, it could be Coke. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's just on a little scale. You can do them in big scales in a microwave with a Pyrex glass and- just chuck it in the microwave and heat it up that way. There's different ways, different bolts of doing it. Like you've probably seen Get Rich or Try Dying when he does it in the, he's a bit of the ice cubes. Have 50, you seen 50, that? 50 cents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, Majestic does it. And he goes, this is going to change the game. That's a bigger, in a bigger bulk. But if you're just a pauper like me and you're buying a gram and just having a, like two or three licks off it, because that's all you get off a gram of Coke, you probably get three hits of crack. So Not much. So the, the sensation is to see it's the same product, but one you're sniffing, one you're smoking. It's just a different ball game, mate. Honestly, the the the, the hit, the taste, the taste is beautiful. You know, it's a, a creamy, vanillary, Moorish. That's the word, Moorish. Some Moorish taste, and so is the buzz. Um, more, more so than just sniffing it. Oh, hundred percent. You know, because because it's instant. instant. And it's, it's, it's when you blow the smoke out is when you really feel the buzz. Um, when your lungs crackle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get those ears ringing, you know, the sweat comes on and the rush is just unbelievable. But this is why I wanted, I'm glad you said why or, or how you wash it back and turn it into crack because I want to show people who look down at people who are crack users. You know, in this world of drugs, the weed head looks down at the coke head, the coke head looks down at the crack head, mm. the crack head looks down at the smack head. We're all addicts at the end of the day. And coke and crack are the exact same thing. Unless baking soda is an illegal substance and it's a killer, that's all you're adding to it. And if anything, you're washing the shit it's bashed with. Any bit of coke we have, you might say it's Bolivian, roll, whatever. By the time you get it, it's cut with something. So when you're burning that out and you're turning it into crack, you, it's probably cleaner than sniffing it. It's the same as well with a heroin addict. As funny as it sounds, the person who injects it is more cleaner than the person who smokes it on the foil. Because the person who smokes it on the foil is just buying the powder, sticking it on the foil, and he's smoking whatever it's cut with. Mm. But the person who injects it is burning the shit out. Same and process. he's drawing it. Yeah, he's drawing it into a syringe. He's using a, a, a tip filter from tobacco to filter all the shit out of it. And you look at the spoon after and there'll be all bits of black and shit where whatever it's cut with, mannitol, 
whatever it's cut with will be left on the spill. Not all of it, but you're burning some of the shit out what it's cut with. So they, 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 this, these people who look, oh, he's a crackhead. They're the same people who are sniffing on the weekend in, in, in the club toilets. And I imagine, so all the substances that you were taking, it was to block out one form or another of anxiety and paranoia. You, 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 you wanted to block out that emotion that scared you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, look, let's not be around the bush. Obviously, I enjoyed it. I love drugs. You know, I, I, for so long, I was so against it. When I did do it, I loved it. And I think it was like, wow, that, that release. Because where I was so shouted, don't smoke fags, don't do this, don't do that by my parents. Although they were doing a good job and they were trying to look out for me, it was probably that rebellious side of me. You know, don't walk on the green grass. Well, I'm going to fucking walk on the green grass, and I? Mm. Um, I think that kind of was in me as well. So when I was released with it, I, I loved it. But it was a big part of it was my mental health, my anxiety kind of suppressing a lot of my feelings. Once I started using, I was flat out. And, you know, it, I didn't have time to think of these, these bad things. Although... We'll get into it. Uh, crack cocaine, it wasn't the best effects for me, really. The the hit was nice. The rush was amazing. But that come down only a minute later is hell. So it don't last long, the buzz? No, 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 no. Uh, you know, it, some people can sit there and have a pipe and sit there for 10 minutes and enjoy that prang. You know, the streets, they made a song called Pranging Out. It's, it's where you're literally digging after that hits and, you know, that's where you get the curtain twitcher from. That's where you get the guy who carries a fucking knife with him in the crack house because he's worried everyone's out to get him. I can't deal with that because, of course, my OCD, crack cocaine, cocaine is a stimulant. So that's magnifying my OCD twice as much. Mm. But I, I, I love the rush. I love the quick hit. And then I'd go straight down with the heroin. And how long was you smoking crack for? Well... The same amount of time I was using heroin, but or before you got yeah. So 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 this is sorry, um, because of where I was from, it was just so normal. Like some of the lads, we'd all we'd all say like we all played for the same rugby team. Yeah, we all went out for a night out. At the end of the night, right, you'd all go yeah. Oh, see you, see you tomorrow. See you next week. See you next week. See you next. But there'll be three or four of you who knows exactly where you're going. You've all planned it. You all know where you're going. You'll all make up. You're all going, and you'll all meet up together. And it would always be every age group is the four or five of you smoke crack, you know? And uh, this is probably everywhere. People will relate to this. There's the four or five of you who would smoke crack. And I just ended up with them one night and I tried it. And I, you know, because it was so normal, I, you know, I always heard of people doing it. I just tried it the one night and um, I didn't get the bad effect at that time. It was only when I got addicted properly that I started to get those bad effects. I had quite a nice time on it. To be honest, I didn't really know what I was looking for that first time. Um, but I did get a rush. But I thought, well, that's fucking shit, really. And kind of left it. But the way my my my, my addiction took, took, took place is I put it down into like three sections. And that's my mental health, bad timing, and the people I hang around with. What happened is I stepped away from my circle of friends um, due to a, a, a silly decision, uh, you know, a, a mistake that I made, which at the time was the end of the world. But looking back, it's trivial. Um, I, I basically uh, 
fell out with my, my best mates. But because, you know, we all hung around together as a gang, you know, I stopped hanging around with everyone, you know? And the bad timing comes into place because my uncle came out of prison during this time, mm. who I always looked up to. You know, when as I'm getting older and I'm visiting him, he's telling me these stories. I always robbed this guy. I always done this. I always done that. I always done that. And I'm just like, I can't wait for him to get out of jail. I can't wait to, to see him. Because during this time now, when I've kind of, you know, I'm not that kid knuckling down in school. I've kind of turned into a bit of a fucking dickhead. Um, I, when I was in this naughty school type of thing, I'd go to this music studio. So I started becoming an MC. And I used to think I was this proper bad boy MC from Cardiff. How did you Grime up, MC. How did you end up in the naughty school? I just stopped. I start, I started becoming a person who wouldn't go to school, just on the knock all the time, smoking weed, disruptive in class. So they said to me, look, just go to it. It was called Imtech, the place on Dumbles Road. Go to Imtech on a on a Thursday and a Friday, you know? So I started doing that instead. I didn't do my GCSEs. I'll tell a lie, I did, but I didn't really, you know, um, put my all into him. So I started to become this kid who was a bit of a, a bit of a rebeller, really. You know, on the weekends, we'd go over to Ely, which is on the other side of the water to us, and we'd have fights with the Ely boys. We'd make music and we'd send shots for them with our with our with our <laughs> with our grime songs and I would make diss songs and stuff. Um you know, and Ely's a mad place. You've probably seen him on the news. They had the riots with the two kids who got it off the bike by the police about four or five months ago. It was in the news everywhere. It was Ely riots. Um, so it's a rough area. Oh, yeah, yeah. So For the it's, dogs. it's the second time they've had riots. They had the Ely bread riots in the 80s, which was well known. And then you had the second time. But, 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 but Fairwater's a rough area as well, just a bit smaller. But that's what it was. And the other thing about my area, Ely... You'd get kids who were 12 peddling heroin on push bikes. Fairwater, it was the working man. It was the cocaine. You know, the heroin wasn't accepted there. You'd get run out, you know? So when my uncle come out of prison, I saw a totally different um, life. My uncle comes out of prison straight away. I started hanging around with him. And my dad is in a bit of a catch-22. He's in that paradox because he don't want me hanging around with my uncle because he can see me swaying off and he knows what his brother's about. But at the same time, it's his brother and, he, you know, he don't want to tell him fucking don't hang around with my son sort of thing. So I started hanging around with my uncle and uh, sort of different life. Uh, he lived Your dad and your uncle are two different people completely. They're just two different levels. Mm. My dad's the mature, grown, wise guy. My uncle's just a fucking nutter. Child, not, I wouldn't say childish, but he is childish. He's fucking... F nearly 40 and he ain't got a fucking penny to scratch his ass with, you know? So they were two totally different people. So me and my uncle were more like brothers mm. rather than being my, uh, my father's brother who I should look up to. On the same wavelength, despite the 100%. age gap. 100%. Well, yeah, you know, I was smoking, you know, taking drugs with him, you know, partying with him. So yeah, so when he come out of jail, yeah. how, how, did, how did he know that you were smoking crack? He didn't at first, obviously. And I wasn't really heavily. I, I, I tried it once, but he knew I was smoking weed. He knew I was drinking and whatever. So obviously I would never blame anyone for me being on drugs. If if I put blame on someone, there's a queue of a hundred people who are going to blame me for getting them on drugs. Let me tell you, we all know what drugs are. We, when we go in school, we know what heroin is. We know what crack is. Um, so I don't blame anyone. I started hanging around with him. And sometimes he'd be like, Cullen, 
fuck off. I don't want you around you at first. But is that because he was using? He was just, yeah, he was doing everything, mate. Like he was, he, he, when he came out of prison, he obviously already built a healthy network of what he was going to do when he got out. And he was bringing people from London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, setting up lines in Cardiff. This, you know, we, we, we call it county lines now, don't we? This was before it was called county lines. I was seeing people from all over the country and he was setting up trap houses in Cardiff for them. And he was more like, because he was a smoker as well. He wasn't somebody who was some, some nitty. He was a big, very intimidating guy, bigger than me, scars all over his face. He's got them, them eyes that like got no soul in him. And uh, was just a wild, wild guy. Like, and uh, you know, he, you know, he'd collect debts for him. He'd kidnap people. He'd do all sorts. But to me, I appealed to that. And you know, he was ten feet tall to me. So that was happening anyway. He when he, as soon as he came out, day one, he had things set up straight away. But he obviously got out, and because of the trauma of him in life, in prison, young age, killing someone, I think he got addicted to heroin in jail. Because I think it was around that time where they went from, you know, mandatory drug testing. So it was weed in jail. And then when the MDTs came in, that's when heroin came into the system because it would take three days to get out of your system rather than weed, which is over a month, give you extra days. That's how heroin came into the system, you know? Mandatory drug testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he got addicted in prison. Well, probably not addicted, but, you know, he tried it. And when he got out, he thought, I fucking love that stuff. Mm. and then just became a heroin addict outside. He's not the only one that would do that, either, is he? No, no, no. 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 And even people who are not addicted outside, people smoke heroin in jail, who... Pass the time. Yeah, 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 definitely. So um, he got into that life, and uh, at first, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd hear stories, I'd see him, always on a warpath, always on a mad one, couldn't just stop and talk to him for half hour, he's, he's doing something. Um... But when I stopped hanging around with my mates and stuff, like I, I wanted to, I found myself gravitating to him doing something, you know, I wanted to hang around with him and just be with someone, you know, I, I was quite in a lonely place at that time. You know, I had other friends I could hang around with people I grew up with in school who were separate to my core friends, but I, it, that didn't appeal to me. You know, it, it really didn't appeal to me. I'm using drugs at the time. So I felt I'd hang around where the drugs are, you know? And did he make you feel safe as well? He did, he did. He, it's mad, he used to take me on, like, take me over to fucking Ely to rob a drug dealer. And I'm in the passenger seat, loving it, watching him do it, coming back with blood all over his hands, fucking drive to his drive. And he wasn't driving, he'd be in the back, we'd be in the back of the car, he'd park up somewhere, he'd rob someone's fucking bag, come out, come back with all blood on him. And I'd be like, what you do, what you do? And he'd be telling me how we fucking stabbed him or, or cut his face and took his bag. I mean, it's, 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 it's the polar opposite from separation. He's completely including you in everything he's doing, yeah. whether it's right or wrong and outright irresponsible. So you're going to gravitate to that. Yeah, definitely. definitely. It makes you feel older as well. It's like, hey, I'm yeah. getting treated like an equal, like an adult, like a man here. Yeah. And I'll tell you another thing, which is mad, uh, going back to that, like separation. So when I was living with my grandmother at, when I was young and then, so I went to jail when he, when he, he went to jail when I was six. So I lived with him because my grandmother, that's his son, my uncle. So he was there as well as a young age. So when he done that and went to prison, I felt like a separation from him as well. Mm. 
So then when he's come back, probably that's why I, I gravitated to him more. Mate, and, for lost time. Yeah, yeah. And he must have been mad for my mum and dad because, you know, they've gone from this, this, this boy who doesn't leave the house, you know, wouldn't go anywhere to, to, to not coming home for days on end, you know? So they knew stuff was happening. They knew something was up and, you know, they started to get worried about me and stuff, but he would never outright tell my brother, his brother, my uncle, fucking stay away from him. You know, he was, it was a bit of an awkward one, you know? So, yeah. So who introduced you to heroin? So. Cause in, in people's eyes, heroin is the big one. Yeah. 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 So. I think it's who you hang around with, isn't it? Like, if you hang around with four burglars, you're probably going to become a burglar. Mm. You know, if I started hanging around with you uh, and your social circle, I'd probably become a fitness freak and bald, probably bald. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, but it is, isn't it? It's, it's that influence of, of, of it. You hang around with three fucking negative people, you are going to be a negative person. And um, I started hanging around with it. And my uncle lived in these flats that, they're in the area, these these flats, but no one from the area lives in these flats. So my dad says, hey, don't go down those flats. He said, nothing good grows down there. No one from Fairwater lives there. They're all people who are vulnerable people moved into these these block these blocks of flats. And uh, but to me, I love that. You know, if a, a new girl moved in, she'd just been giving it out. I'm straight in there, you know. Fucking that's what I was like. And I I loved it down there. So my uncle had a flat down there. And, and his mate had a flat down there as well. And, you know, council life, innit? There's always an house party going on in the block of flats. Always. So I lived it down there. Started, uh, like I said, when I started actually hanging around with him and he kind of just gave up that I was always going to be around, I started to see everything, you know. Uh, guns. I remember holding this, star, this little Star 9 handgun and shooting it in the pillow in the flat, letting off shots in his flat, like just the block ringing, but just not caring, <laughs> shooting this fucking star nine, probably being used in four murders in London. You know, no no gloves, nothing. Just thinking I'm cool, taking photos like ah, with this fucking gun, you know? It's just mad to think back now. And and the one, the one gun that, that, that was there, um, the girl across the road ended up looking after it and she got arrested and busted with the gun and, I don't, did she get yeah, prison time? Well, she she didn't. She didn't. I, I I know. I know. I don't know what happened. She she got arrested. I think she was on remand and stuff. Bailed, but she didn't get time for it. I think the person who was going to did went no. down, and maybe she said something. I don't know. But you know, it was just bad, like to think that that because it was a it was a star nine, and it was a little double hand one as well, shotgun with the with with the cartridges, and it, they found it in her wall. But um. You know, I started seeing stuff like that. I'm seeing lumps of fucking crack on the on the on the on the table, big lumps of heroin, and uh, it, basically, because he he, he, he was a smoker, but he wasn't your typical smoker. And this is what amazes me, really. And this is the perception of drug drug addicts that I'm trying to show the public that it really is. Not every heroin addict has no teeth, no family. No clothes, no house. It, it's not always the case. You do get legit brownheads, we used to call them, a legit brownhead. Someone who works, someone who looks smart, someone who got a car, someone who looks at, you know, could actually hold down a conversation and you would never think he was addicted to heroin. And, and my uncle probably was one of them. And he hung around with people who 
sold it and smoked it. So they had the nice cars, they had the girls, they had the chains. They'd have, a, I remember they used to have like a bowl of weed in the house and they just, you know, people would just help themselves smoking the weed as they were chopping up and stuff. It was like, it was all new to me and it was like something I never saw, seeing lots of money and stuff, you know, it was I, appealing. I call, I know you don't like the word, I, I call them corporate junkies. Well, that's, that's people, what they are. In the corporate industry that you would never think would even dabble and that they have got a full-blown habit, be it cocaine or heroin, but they can function, they can get up, they can go to work, they hide it. They can hide it from their family, from their wife for decades. Yeah. Mm, they, they're out there. Oh, mate, 100%. Like, uh, you know, when I started to get a trust off some of them, I was just a fucking divvy. You would say, these you are, go and take that to the guy down the bus stop. And some of the people I saw were like bankers, lawyers. Mm. You would just never think it. Mm. You know, the chef, the chef coming down in his chef whites and he just don't look like a smoker at all. Remember some of these addicts, they, you know, they, they, they become addicts from all different ways. Some of them might have a bad back, was prescribed something and ends up having to score heroin, becomes a heroin addict, you know? They, these people are not just scum of the earth. To clarify, when you, you keep using the, the term smoker, you're talking about, when you say a smoker, that's someone that smokes heroin. A, a smoker to me could be heroin, uh, a crack smoker, heroin smoker. Yeah, yeah, it could be that. And, 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 and at the beginning, that's all I saw. Never really saw anyone inject it. And that was the other thing that kind of made me not, you know, heroin's the end of the world. It, I didn't get that because they were smoking it in spliffs. Mm. They were smoking it on the foil. You know, it was more classy than seeing a guy sticking in a, you know, with a belt wrapped around him and fucking, you know, like you see in the movies. I didn't see any of that. It's an ugly sight. It is an ugly sight. And I, I no doubt you will see that if you go down that road. But at the time I didn't see that because I wasn't in it. And what I did see was a bit more glamorous, I would say. You know, I, I, it was it was exciting. Um, so what happened was, you know, I started going around there all the time, staying over some nights, you know? Um, and then one night I went out with a friend uh, who was totally separate to the ones I stopped hanging around with, separate to that circle. He was someone I went to school with who I still had a close bond with. And we went out for a drink one night and we were taking cocaine. And um, on the way home, I went home, we called it a night about say 12, one o'clock. And I went back, instead of going home, I went back to the flats. Uh, where my uncle lived. Didn't go to that flat, but I went to the block. And uh, I went back to this flat where there was loads having a party. And there was all cans all on the table where they were all smoking crack. You know, this ain't a dingy, like, shit fucking kid. Like, it's, it's a party. Mm. You know, there's some girls here, but in the kitchen, you've got the crack smokers, you know, and that, that's what it was like. So I ended up smoking crack. I had some crack. And it wasn't like the first time I'd done it. I was, I, the reason I didn't mind taking it is because I remember that first time I took it and it wasn't really much of a biggie. Um, so I had it and I don't know if it was the power of the crack or it was just the mix with the alcohol, uh, which is, which we now know is called cocathlene, uh, alcohol and cocaine. There's a, um, a chemical in your, in your brain that it, it makes the drug called cocathlene. And it, it makes its enzymes stronger. Um, and I had the I had the crack and I just straight away just had that bad turn. The same turn I have with the weed, 
the same deal I have with any kind of paranoid experience. I just had that bad dig out. And um, one of the guys who was in the room noticed that. And he went, yo, you were I? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I was all fucking digging. And uh, he went, you were, have a puff of this. And I thought it was a spliff of weed. And I went, no, no, that'll, that'll make me worse. Mm -hmm. He went, no, it's laced with a bit of gear. You'll be all right. And gear's heroin. He said, trust me, you'll be fine. And like I said, I think because of being around it, handling it, giving it, seeing these normal people taking it, it wasn't so much of a, you cheeky fucker, don't offer me that. It was more like, shall I try it? And um, I remember saying, I can't do it. I'm fucking, I don't want to be an heroin addict. He went, don't be so stupid. He said, you've got to take it every single day for a week straight to get a habit. He said, you'll be fine. Trust me, have a puff. And during that time, I think the combination of the worry of the prying out of the, the crack, I just, I just took it off him and I had two puffs. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was just like all my problems just disappeared straight away. Um, it felt like someone, like an angelic force wrapped its arms around me and just said, everything's going to be okay. Um, and yeah, I just, look, I, you know, from, from then it was a blur. But all I know is, I say it, it never physically got me because I went home that day and didn't touch it for a bit. But I always knew that I was addicted from that day because I knew that I was going to take that again. Mm. I was like, that was something else. And I think I knew there and then that I was going to be a heroin addict for the rest of my life. You enjoyed feeling comfortably numb. Oh, like the song. Mm. Just like the song. I they must have been taking it themselves for them to, to, to describe it like that. You wouldn't put lyrics together like that unless you, unless you were. Exactly. Um, but you wasn't sick the first time you took it. No, no. So, so I, I went home. I went home and uh, in the morning I woke up with this big, big shame and guilt. Asking myself, questioning myself, am I a smackhead? Am I a junkie? I've just taken heroin. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting for like you know, something to happen, you know, start tweaking out, you know, when you hear all the cluckings, the shakings, none of that. So that kind of wore off that, I'll never do that again, I'll never do that again. And when that wore off, all I remember was the feeling I had and I wanted that again. Um, and, and for the first one. Do you, so do you remember when you got home after the first time you'd done heroin? Yeah. You got back into your bed. So like a lot of people that do cocaine, they'll know that when they... Oh, get in bed after a, after a session on the on the nose bag. They're on ceiling duty. They're uh, they're nervous. They're twitching. They're yeah. sweating. They're clammy. They're panicking, and they're probably going and having a big mouth of the whiskey to take take the edge off. Yeah. When you first done heroin, when you got into bed, did you get any of that shit <sighs> feeling? Edgy, paranoid, not knowing what to do with yourself. No, feeling? no. You just sunk into that sleep yeah. nicely, mates. Honestly. I remember rubbing my nose like that, quite an itchy nose. It's, it's like you're just filled with this warm feeling and like everything's going to be okay. Mm. It was only the next day when that kind of wore off that I felt like, fuck, what have I done here? I've taken heroin. Like, is my mum and dad going to find out? Is this the end of my world? You know, am I... Because I didn't know the feeling. I didn't know the procedures of, of how to be addicted. All I got told by this one guy was... 
you have to smoke it every day for a week to, to get a physical addiction. Um, so that was that. And then I started to creep around my uncle because he didn't know that first time. He didn't know because it wasn't him who gave me the spiff. He wasn't there. But I started to hint to him that I've tried it. And he always used to say to me, if you ever touch, like he, he wouldn't mind if I was smoking crack or anything. He said, if you ever touch this, I'll fucking kill you. That's what he used to say to me. But, you know, later on down the line, it, I, and, and I, I don't think he's a bad person for it. He's ill. He, he's got an addiction. But he, he just kind of allowed it, like, you know, when we'd smoke together. Mm. Um, it, it kind of went like this, as I remember it. It went from, I was working at the time as well. Like always had a little job, you know, uh, whether it was fucking Christmas type jobs or hot washing a fucking restaurant or working behind the bar. Always had some, trying to get some money. Um, and it went from something that I'd done once a month to every fortnight, to every week until it became something that one day I remember I got, I think I got sacked from my job and I had a bit of money and I told my uncle, like basically, sorry, let me go back. For the for that year that I was kind of dabbling with it and I didn't physically get dependent, it, I literally did dance with that devil. I toyed with addiction. I'd only have it every now and then. So I didn't physically get the addiction. Um, but it was like that because like I said, it, it became more frequent and longer durations taking it. But for a long time, I couldn't score off anyone because my uncle would say to me, listen, you're not scoring off anyone. And I'm telling the dealers not to serve you. And they would say, I can't serve you. You're Macy's nephew, he'll kill me. <laughs> these are these fucking big dealers who just refused to serve me because they knew he was my uncle. But what I found contradicting and very hypocritical was as long as I gave him the money, he would score for me. He would smoke most of it and then give me a couple of lines. Yeah, and he'd say, if anyone sells you this, I'll fucking kill him. But it was okay if I said, you are, and that's what it went like. I'll never forget the one time I was working for an agency in the Millennium Stadium. Uh, Wales were playing New Zealand in an autumn series. And because of the agency I worked for, they mostly um, recruited foreigners, Africans, Asians. And because... I was British, I'm assuming, and I speak well, and I was quite a confident person. I quickly managed to like climb their agency kind of ladder and they put me through training to become like this team leader. So I'd end up working in places like the Celtic Manor, Cheltenham Racecourse, Chepstow Racecourse, the Millennium Stadium, all these places, and I'd be a team leader. So that means that I run the bar and I have the float of the money and all this type of stuff. So the one day I was working in the Millennium Stadium and it was New Zealand, Wales. And I had like this unit and they give me the money. And what I'd done was, now I wasn't physically addicted by them, but this just shows how much I loved heroin and how much I wanted to take it. I was working. And how old are you now? Uh, 18. 18, still I, very young. I, it was 19 when I physically, so I was 18 working in, in, in the Millennium. Uh, half time came and bearing in mind, you know, security you work in there are like, they come to me like, if you see anyone suspicious who you think might be stealing any money, just walkie-talkie us. Yeah, no worries. Half time case. <laughs> I've emptied the tilt. <laughs> I took about fucking 700 quid 
and whatever I could fit. I had these shoes. I had on the, on the soles of them. I cut the soles out like so I could stick the money in there. So I had two of my soles full with, with notes and my bum cheeks filled with a couple hundred as well. Halftime came. I just went and watched the rest of the game. I watched the rest of the game and walked out and I thought, I'm going to get a comeback off this, but I never did. They rung me the next week to do the next game, which was bizarre. And I thought they were going to arrest me, but they never. But I walked out with, 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 with our money and I remember ringing my uncle. Oh, man, please, i got money. Please come and meet me. And he'd he, 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 like toy with me as well. What are you ringing me for? What do you want? He knew exactly what I wanted, but he wanted me to say it like, do you know what I mean? Please, I wanted you to go and score some heroin for me and I want us to have a smoke. Oh, no, no. And then he'd ring me back two minutes later. No, fuck off, fuck off. I'm not doing it. Ring me back two minutes later. How much you got? You know, it was that like toying thing with me. And um, Is that banter or did he enjoy controlling you? I don't know. I don't think it was banter. I think maybe 10 minutes before he had drugs, 10 minutes later he ran out. Fuck, I might as well ring him. Go on, how much you got? Hmm. I don't know. And was that the first time you'd ever stolen um, for money for drugs? No, because I did it with the weed, I think, you know, you know, little things. But on a mass scale, maybe, yeah, like that was quite a big hit, like, you know, walking out of my work with over 700 quid. Um, that's risk. That's risking everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Y your life, but you don't even think about it at the time. Y yeah, your liberty. Yeah, and and that's why I say I was addicted from the moment I I tried it with that mm. spliff, but I wasn't physically dependent. But mentally, it could be just like a coke habit by then, because you know you're not physically dependent on it. Mm. But mentally, I am. I'm addicted. So I was addicted, and uh, I didn't care. And I met like so. It was a lot of that for the first like couple of months of. I didn't know to score off. I'd have to go through my uncle to get it. And the times I haven't got any money and I, I want it, he's saying, no, you ain't touching fucking heroin. But the times I got the money, how much you got? Remember one time he came to my work. He went, where are you? He, he, he ended up knowing my paydays. Where are you? I'm in work, aunt. Right, I'm coming to meet you now. Where are you? How much you got? Why? I'm going to get his things. I'm going to get his things. You know, and, you know, and then like I... I I thought, oh, this, it was weird. It was all weird. But looking back, there was a lot of manipulation there. Um, I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just to feed his own addiction. Um, but that's, that's what it was. And I remember the first time I ever got someone to link me up with a dealer. So I didn't have to go to him no more. And uh, he, he, he found out and he fucking battered the guy. I felt sorry for him. The guy was like, he battered him with an umbrella in his flat. You know, you think of a Pontian brand and he was stabbing fuck out of his head with the fucking metal end. And how did he, how did he justify that seeing as he's guilty of you giving- fucking selling drugs to my nephew. But he, you know- Could he not see the, the hypocrisy? <laughs> I don't think so. Whoever fucking sell things to my fucking nephew again, I'll fucking kill you. And then I'd go back to his flat and he'd give me two lines at the end of his file. Did he have other people around him that used to do the same thing too? Oh, he, you know, no, he, he was the alpha male out of all, everyone. He's a big guy, like, you know? Yeah, I, I, like the dealers over Ely would ring him up in the morning and say, listen, Macy, listen, don't rob my dealer. I've got a separate package for you. Just come and get it. Don't take the phone. Don't take the money. Just come and get your stuff. You know, and he'd go over for breakfast and he'd have like half a queue or something for him. Hmm. he's had his comeuppance I remember one time he went, he went over there he fucking he, yeah, he's, he's got a massive scar it's like a shark bite there and on his head and there where 
he got attacked by machetes. They were waiting for him. People ain't going to take that, are they? People ain't, you know, they only take so much. But he's done a lot of that. Did you ever see him be violent? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen him. He, he's been violent to me. You know, I've seen him. I've seen him do it to other people as well. Seen him beat up that guy you, who went and scored for me. Mm. Um, and then I've also seen like the aftermath. So coming back with blood on him, you know, he's he's clearly just cut someone up pretty bad. Like what was what was the worst scene of violence you witnessed? Because you're still young as well. Um, I I don't know. I think probably the worst the worst I've seen with him was when I got robbed. I got robbed. This is before any of this, actually. This is before. I, I got robbed in town. I got put in a phone box. I was so naive. These two guys got me in a phone box. They went, oh, yo, let me use your phone. I went in the phone box where there's a phone. They went, give me all your fucking money because I was going to town with my mate's cinema. And he must have seen that I had like 40 quid on me. It was only 40 quid. But they robbed me in the phone box, these guys. And when I went home and told my old man, my uncle's ringing up, who's the fucking guys? And I, we found out who it was. And, we, and we, we went to the flat they were staying and they let us in the flat before these boys got home because my uncle knew the guy. And um, we were my uncle was hiding in the cupboard waiting for these guys to come back. And um, that was probably the worst I seen. It, it was more like he was torturing them. He was stamping on their heads, fucking them up, like, like beating them to a pulp. Weapons was, or just his hands? Uh, just his hands. I think, you know, whatever he can get his hands on, pick something up, throw it on him. But he wasn't using weapons for that. But he was known to carry weapons. He always had a Stanley blade on him. You know, like those, not like the thick ones, but like the long skinny ones. Yeah. He always had one of them on him if he was going robbing or whatever, you know. But I, you know, I, I've seen quite a lot of violence with him. And I've seen a lot in jail with him as well. A lot of violence in jail. That was later on when, you know, I'm addicted and- Yeah, so how, how did you, so how quick did your heroin habit escalate from, cause you, so you're doing it every every month. I'm assuming you was doing it like after a nightclub, that was your come, that was your wind me down. Then you was doing yeah. it every two weeks, then every week. And then before you know it, you're doing it every day. Then compounding on that habit, how much was you spending on heroin a day? Uh, at what, the worst or? At, at the, the journey. Yeah, you know, it, you know, it, it, when I like, I'll never forget when I first got addicted. Like, yeah, it's, it's horrible. Clucking ain't nice. It's not. It's not nice. And the longer you do it, the, the harder the clucks get, and the more habit you have. You know, the more tolerance. What is a cluck? A cluck is a, a withdrawal from a drug. You know, they call it clucking or rattling. Uh, it's withdrawing from that drug. Um, Alcohols, withdrawals are very bad. You could die off an alcohol withdrawal. Um, but heroin is, a heroin withdrawal is nasty. Different level. Different level. Cause it, you can't die off a heroin withdrawal, but I do think it would probably be on the same level or worse than an alcohol withdrawal. Well, because a lot of people, they don't even realize it watching this, they withdraw from alcohol. Anyone that has hair of the dog, they're doing that to take away the withdrawal. Of course. Yeah, but they, 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 won't, they, won't, they won't associate it with yeah. withdrawing, but that's exactly yeah. why they need to take the edge off. That anxiety is, with, is, is you withdrawing from alcohol. Yeah, and then it's that vicious circle, because if you're always having that hair of, hair of the dog. Two drinks in, then you're on it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When are you not going to have a hair of the dog, mate? Do you know what I mean? It's, um... Yeah, so describe the cluck in detail, because I, I, I wouldn't have a clue. I never, I, I've never uh, done that. So, there's many aspects to it. Um, 
you know, the mental side and the physical side, you know, you because I've seen your head shot I, I've, I've seen people cl- like they're scratching themselves. I've seen yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, mentally your head is in a different space. You are fried um, because heroin opiates is a uh, you know something that suppresses your receptors. Once you're on heroin, you don't care. You have no emotion. You your best mate could die and you will not shed a tear. You'll feel sad, and you'll be like, "Why ain't I crying?" You know, like it's it's very strong. So. Once the heroin comes off, your emotions come flooding back. Vivid dreams, you know, everything's emotional to you. You realize all the bad things you've done. That's the, you know, the mental side to it. The physical side is just everything from, you know, a a real bad flu, let's say, you know, a a real bad, uh, violent flu. Um, You get the shits. You can't, and you can't control this. Your ass is pissing. Shits, the six, the stomach cramps, the stomach cramps are uh, you know, horrific. Feels like someone's stabbing you from the inside out. Like, you know, you know, like alien with the fucking, mm. where the alien comes out of his stomach. It's, it's that arching feeling. You feel like something's coming out of your stomach. Um, the sweats, the hot sweats, the cold sweats. You know, you're warm, but you're cold. You're cold, but you're warm. I put, you know, that uncomfortable thing you were saying about the itching. Say like you had a haircut when you was a kid and all the hairs in your clothes and you're itchy and you can't get comfortable. So you get that feeling as well. And you don't sleep for days. When, you know, I done a methadone and a heroin rattle in prison one time. I didn't sleep for a month. I was doing double bird. You know, my pad made sleeping. Mm. I'm, I'm up all night. Didn't sleep for a month. Uh, it, it's horrible, mate. And, 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 and I always cluck bad. Always violently sick for days, filling up buckets and buckets and buckets of pure bile. It's not even sick. It's not even food. It's this green toxic bile of the poison that's in you. And I suppose you're only ever going to cluck either when you can't afford it or you want a cold turkey and come off it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've done it once or twice where I always made sure that I had gear on me every morning to make sure I was better. You know, you learn as you go along in your addiction. The first couple of years, you, you'd smoke it till it's all gone and you'd wake up in the morning saying, why did I fucking smoke that last bit? I, I'm going to have to get up and do a graft before I even get my fixes now. Do you know what I mean? But after a while, you learn to make sure you've got something in the morning. That's interesting, that terminology you just used there. You said, I, I always kept a bit for the morning to make sure I was better. Yeah which the polar opposite to not being better, not being well, is being ill. Yeah. So you're identifying that you're, you're now ill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's People think that you take heroin. L- listen, after, after a couple of months of using, you only take heroin to be normal. You know, you don't take it and you feel oh, like this. It's just to feel normal. You know, it's, it's bizarre. But that... That, that glow will always be there, like, oh, you don't care about anything. But those first two times you take it is that beautiful, warm, floating feeling. Not a problem, not a worry in the world. But after a month when you are physically addicted, you're not taking it to get high. You're taking it to feel better, to be like a normal person. It sounds like the worst drug on the planet. So literally- The that, most that, pointless that, drug. That, yeah, that cozy, comfortably numb feeling is so short-lived, but then the addiction is possibly forever. Forever. Clucking, 
being sick, yeah. having to steal, having to rob, having to find, I'm, I'm assuming you had to find more and more money the bigger the habit got. Of course, yeah. Um, um, which was, which was it? how big was the habit? Oh, mate, fucking bad, big. Go on. Well, b- before I do that, I'll just go back quickly. So yeah, the, the, the times you would be, you would do a rattle would be, if you haven't got the many, and there was times where I thought, you know, uh, I woke up, I physically couldn't get out of bed because I didn't have anything on me and I just read it out. Or it would be if, Cullen, you're going up your hands, you're sorting your fucking head out, you're getting clean. You can't do this no more here. Go and do a rattle. Or if you get taken by the police, you know, and, and you have to go to jail and rattle. So they're the times when you would be withdrawing. Um, but yeah, my, my, my addiction got really bad. I was a gannet. I was a, I was a glutton. You know, I'd only need a bag to be okay throughout the day that would last me um, without withdrawing until like the night or the next day. But I wouldn't buy one bag, I'd buy 10 bags and I'd smoke all them bags. And then I'd go out and do it all over again. My, 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 my I put my addiction into two categories, the first five years and the second five years. The first five years of my addiction was, well, it was always desperation, but it was um, amateur. Um, Learning a lot about the game. You know, I've lived my life, everything given to me by my family, and now I'm out on my own. And now I have to find ways to make money. Because even that first year of being addicted, my mum and dad didn't really find out so they were fun. Man, can I have some money? Can I have 20 quid? Can I have 25 quid? And, and at the time, my, my, my habit ain't that big. So 25 quid will last me the day. 25 quid, mum. 20 quid, dad. Now, can I borrow 20 quid? And then when it started to get out, I, I couldn't do it. Any. They wouldn't give me no money. So what I did was I became this person. I was labeled in the papers, a uh, professional blagger, well-dressed man, well-dressed spoken man, hanging around uni campuses, tapping students for many. And that's what I used to do. Just go around Uni South Wales, um, Swansea, uh, Bath, Newport, Bristol. And I pretend I was a lost student and tap people for many. Um, so that's what I did because do you know why I'd done that? I did not want to commit a crime. I, I didn't think I'd ever go to jail. I thought I couldn't handle jail. I was too soft for that. Remember, I didn't want to leave my fucking mum and, dad, my mum and dad's mm-hmm. side. So I couldn't be going to jail for fucking X amount of months or weeks, you, you mad. So I tried to do anything that wasn't criminal. And I felt like me using my my charm, my wit to get a couple of quid off someone, I'm not robbing it off them, I'm not stealing, I'm not burgling houses. Felt like I was justifying myself with what I was doing. Mm. So that was like the first five years. And then the second five years is when I started to go to prison. Um, I met this girl, uh, my ex-girlfriend who I got on drugs as well, very, very sad to say. She was a normal girl, you know? She was a, uh, uh, like a manager as a carer, but she had a set of wheels. And that was game over for me because that's when I discovered shoplifting. And that's where my my money side came into it. Um, firstly, started off by just going locally, just nicking little fucking, you know, a, a polo top selling at half price or nicking a, a bottle of vodka selling at half price. Meat, cheese, you know, like the the the, the nitty type. So you were still lifting. anything. Oh, anything. And at the at the beginning, I was quite shit. You 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 learn, you know. And then within like a couple of 
months of doing that, I that is when I started to fucking think, whoa, I can actually make a lot of money doing this. Uh, and the more money you make, the more drugs you take. You know, I never had a saving. Mm. I never had nothing to show for it. Um, it was all for my, my, my drug addiction. But it went from that to thousands a day. Thousands a day I was making and smoking. Um, so you had a habit that cost thousands of pounds a day. <laughs> I need, well, when I said, well, I was making thousands a day, raising, stealing thousands. I was selling it half the price. I was giving my driver half. So I was smoking on, on a good day. I'd go to a grand on a bad day. If I woke up late, say like I woke up late, say it's three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not going to travel far. I'm just going to go to one or two shops out of Cardiff, come back, sell it, just make 200 quid, give my driver a winner. I got a winner. So on a bad day, I'd smoke hundred pounds worth and then I'd make sure I'm up early the next day and we'd go up country, you know? That, that was a bad day. On a good day, I was making thousands. And, I, and whatever you made, you smoked? The next morning, I'm asking my mum for a fag. You know? So you, you could have quite easily spent in one month 30 grand. I worked it out. Day. I worked it out. I've just done a thing with the, because um, of the shoplifting right now, the cost of living crisis. So i just done an article. It'll be out by the time this comes out with um, a big media outlet about my lifting. And I worked out how much. So when I did that lad Bible interview, it said I, I smoked 70K a year on, I, I smoked more than that. I was going to say it. A lot more than that. Yeah. It said on heroin, but it was heroin and crack. I was making, I, th I worked it out in, 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 in the time, I've, I've stole over three millions pounds worth of stuff. And, and when I, I did restorative justice with cooperative shops, they were my favorite. <laughs> Shout out to co-op. <laughs> they were my favorite, but I did restorative justice with them. I thought restorative justice was this, you know, you killed someone and you wanted to meet the mother and say, I'm, you know, I done fucking restorative justice for shoplifting. And when I did it, I was on a Zoom call during lockdown and I had these head of different regional managers, Southwest England, South Wales, Mid Wales, North Wales, all the managers. And they wanted to speak to me and they, why co-op? And they worked out that I stole over 1.5 million worth of belongings from their shops, just their shops alone. Wow. And I was doing, you know, Tesco's, Spa, fucking Lidl, you know, all the fucking top clothing brands, you know, all the fucking garden centers for the Yankee candles. I went out of blips through, I was just, just hitting Yankee candles. And where would you go to sell all the products? So you have something called a fencer. You must know a fucking fencer, someone who buys anything, you know? Um, you have fencers, you have local people. If, I, if I'm going locally, you know. Market traders. Market traders, oh, they love it like, you know. When you said Yankee Candle, I thought you must know a market trader. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it depends what you've got. But I had a buyer for fucking Tipex. I had a buyer for anything. And that's dangerous mm. for an addict. Because what I, if, 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 if I had something, no matter what it is, and I sell it for the third of the price to this guy who will sell it for half the price, he's going to buy it off me, whatever it is. Just as, and it might only be 50p. But if I've got a bag full of them, that's a hundred quid. And that, that's how I looked at it. You know, anything I made, I'd have car, I would have a car full, a van full, 
alcohol, aftershaves, sunglasses, frames, you know, 300 pound frames from fucking Vision Express. I've got a glove com compartment full of them. I'll just sell them a tenner a pop. Everything I looked at was heroin. Mm. It was not many. You know, people say to me, you could be a millionaire, mate. Well, I couldn't because if I didn't take drugs, I wouldn't have done those things. I, 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 you know, I don't think I was good at what I'd done, but I was good at what I'd done because all I was thinking about was my fix. And if I get that there, then I can get that, that much of, of heroin and that much of crack. But, you know, wherever you go, everyone loves a bargain. Everyone loves a bargain, uh, Lee. And, you know, you'd walk down the street and you'd have the fucking old lady pulling your arm off because she wants fucking detergents and blocks of cheese and the steaks for the weekend, you know, the cooked dinner on the weekend. So you'd have those people who, who you could sell to all day. But I'll, I'll give you an example of, of what I do at my height, at my highest. So I'd in the night, I, I, I'd speak to my, my driver because this is the problem with the, a lot of addicts don't get, which, which I, I realized and I never went without a driver for that matter. A lot of addicts, they don't think of the next day. They think of now, don't they? So they get a driver probably once in a blue moon. They go out shoplifting and they give the driver petrol money and a tenner. He ain't coming back for that. He ain't risking that. Anyone I went out with, I would split what I made half and I'd fill their tank up. I'd fill their tank up anyway and I would give them half of what I made. Therefore, people were always saying, you know, I'd have phone calls all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go out? Do you want to go out? I'm struggling. Oh, my missus, I'm in debt, man. Oh, let's go out. You know, mates I've known all my life who were probably struggling or whatever, they've, they've got their jobs, but they'd ring me up on the weekend. fancy going away for the weekend because they knew they'd make good money with me. And all they were doing was driving somewhere, parking around the corner. I was never the guy who would, you know, rack and run. I was always cool, calm, undetected and walk out. You know, I never wanted to roll around with security guards. I wanted to go in and come out. And, you know, if I got to come back six months down the line, so be it. As long as I got my blaze that day, I didn't mind. You sounded like you was too busy almost to be sat in, in a crack den. Oh, mate, I, I was the addict who went back to the dens and, and shared with everyone, broke off. I never, I, you know, I, I find with addicts, they come in pairs or gangs and they have a right-hand man. I was a loner. And... You know, even in, it sounds weird, but even in that world of addiction, I surpassed my uncle. To me, like I, you know, when I first started, was I was a reliable, I was reliant on him. And, mm. to, you know, he would ring me then begging me for shit, you know, because I made good money of what I'd done. You know, I didn't look like a smoker, you know. You'd see some of the photos, they're horrific. But when I dressed up smart and, you know, especially them younger days, didn't look like an addict. And uh, I was able to get away with a lot of things and make a lot of money. So I was too busy for that. And, you know, it got to the point where, like, you know, I, I, I didn't want to smoke on my own. So I'd make my money. I'd go back and then I'd smoke with someone. But it got to a point where some people, if you didn't show up at their house one night and you went back the next day, they'd get funny with you. Where was you last night? Because they're so used to you going back there and smoking their drugs with them. All codependent. Yeah. Where was you last night? fuck off you know mm. but yeah i was always on my own and i i, I couldn't I, I was never someone who'd smoke crack in the days you get some addicts who literally take anything and they smoke anything and they they, they you know pills 
crack, it don't matter what it is, they want it in them. I was a gannet, but I was a gannet for heroin. That was what made me better. That is what made me feel content in life. And that's what I loved. That was my poison. Crack was the thing that was on the side. That was like my, you know, my, you know, like the weekend you work, I'd have a pint. That was my pint. That was the crack. Mm. The heroin was my demon. And yeah, that, that that's what it was. I was I, I was out all day. I'd make sure I was okay in the morning, have my bag, and then I was out grafting. And then I'd come back and I'd spend it all on fucking heroin and crack. In in the dens. In the in in yeah, in the dens. And I'd cross, you know, I'm there dressed to the nines, looking smart, and I'm crossing thresholds that had proper fucking dives. And I'm looking down at these people. That's the worst thing about it is I'm the same as these people, and I'm looking down at them. Because I feel like I'm better than them. And are, th are these the people that are just laying on a mattress without a sheet with needles hanging out of their arms? I think- I think themselves, shitting I, themselves. There is that. There is that. And I have been in places like that. Like the that. train spotting scenario. Yeah, there is that. But but it's not always that. You know, some- Because that's some my, of them, my, my recollection of crack dens when I used to go visiting them with my old man were multiple mattresses all stained with piss and whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. No sheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Used needles. The smells, the you, you never the old DVDs, the old, it's just all weird shit. You never and forget the smell of smack. No, it gets in your clothes, in your wardrobe, in your a furniture. fishy smell, isn't it? Horrible, fishy metallic smell. Mm. And yeah, yeah, there was that. There was definitely that. You know, I've had many. So times. you've been in that environment. Oh mate, I lived in it. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget one one night. I. This is when, before I was raising, this was when I was doing the blagging in town. There was this trap house behind the city centre, behind our train station. And I used to go out and I'd go into town on like a match night or a weekend. Cardiff's a busy town. It's a good night out, a lot of stags, hens, a lot of students. So it was not a problem to make money, whether it's a Monday or a Saturday. I'd go out fucking round the corner, I'd be an hour, I got 150 quid. The other addicts, where they're finished, where they don't look after themselves, they don't wash, their teeth are gone, they're fucked, they couldn't stand me because I could get away with pretending I was lost and I'm trying to get home because I looked, I didn't look like an addict. So they used to think that I was, a, I was an escort. They couldn't believe that I'd go out for an hour and come back with this money. People would say, oh, he's, a, he's obviously selling his ass. He's selling his ass. I wasn't. I was genuinely out tapping. Uh, but, but, but. Not that sort of tapping. Yeah. No <laughs> ball tapping, you know? But they couldn't believe it. So I remember one night I, I went out. I made my money when they smoked. But it was about one o'clock and I was still awake and I thought, that ain't me. I, I need more. So I went back out, come back again. I'm smoking. I'm on this little dingy fucking dingy chair. What? It was like a townhouse. You know, the ones in shared houses. You go in and you've got someone who lives there, someone who lives there. You go up and you've got two lives there. And the flat, the, the house I was staying in, found out later that the guy whose house, whose name it was in, was being, uh, they call it cocooing. It's, it's, just, it's just a trap house. Someone being exposed. Someone who's vulnerable. Um, um, so a trap house is someone being used to hold the stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, the, the guy, the drugs. Well, the guy who lived there didn't even. He was slow. He was he was mentally slow. Mm. 
And the person I knew was his Padme. But I thought it was this guy's house, but it wasn't. It was the, the guy who he said, who was mentally slow. It was his house. But you go in there and it was like, it was like, oh, that smell. It's just rotten on the skirting boards. are just matted with cobwebs and shit. You know, there's clothes piled everywhere and this fucking, this shitty little TV in the corner. And then the sofas around, all different sofas, you know, matted and full of grease and sweat and stains. And they're all around, they're all comatose. Some of them are there fucking with a piece of paper. They've just gone out picking a load of dibbies. And they, you know, when they're out, they're, you know, pulling the dibbies out and they're making rollies out of it. Just a fucking dive. Men and women. Men and women, working girls. All sorts. Working girls who are past it, you know, lucky to get someone to pay, you know, really fucking and the bottom of the bottom I am in. And I remember going in there and there was like, you'd have the sofas around, but there was like this one main chair in the middle. And I'd always sit on there because you had the table and I'd always sit there because I always had... The one guy who lived there, he wouldn't leave his house. He wouldn't leave because he knew people would come to him. So he just sits there all day and waits for people to throw something at the window and say, yo, well, let me come in and have a pipe. Because he knows these people are coming in and they're going to give him half. So his habit all depended on people coming there, whether it was to chop up or to smoke. Well, people, people come in there to sleep with the prostitutes as well. Sleep with the prostitutes. And so whatever, was be, whatever action was happening in that gaff, this guy is having a cut from it. Mm. He'd sit there, so, you know... If, if, if he meant that no one went there for the day, he would sit there and rattle in some, until someone came. You know, I'm sure that one, one or, once or twice, he probably done two, three days, no heroin, could have gave up and, and been clean. Someone knocks the door and he just back on it. Like, just, he just not get up and go. And I hated people like that because I had to go out and graft. Mm. And I did graft. Never once relied on anyone. Never once relied or bummed or... You know, let me have a pipe. I was never that guy. I was the one who would put on people. And, um, you know, I remember being sat on this table and I'm there and I'm smoking my shit and I'm passing him some and I'm, do you want a pipe? Yeah, go on. We're, we're all piping and whatever. That's my gear. And I thought, oh, it's about fucking four in the morning now. I might as well get my head down, get my head down for two, three hours and I'll wake up and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, early bird catches the worm type of thing, you know? And I remember fucking, I'll never forget, I woke up, right? And this is like, this is what I mean about how dodgy these places are. I woke up and I can't feel my left hand. I can't feel it. I'm thinking I must have slept on this dodgy. You know, I've slept on it dodgy, definitely. It'll come round soon, you know, give it an hour or two, bit of shaking. My arm, I never had, no, I lost all feeling in my left arm for about four months. And I still don't know to this day what happened, but I am adamant someone fucking either injected me with something or I've pricked something. My dad was adamant my arm was going to fall off because he, he was like, you need to go. And I refused to go to, that's another thing with addicts. We refuse to go to doctors or hospitals. We'd rather self-medicate, you know? I never had a headache for fucking 10 years. Mm. 
You know, I never had a bad back. I have now, but I never had a bad back or a headache for 10 years because I just self-medicated. But I remember having this numb fucking arm for like four months. And I thought, I'm going to lose my fucking arm. And I don't know what happened, but I think someone in there fucking pricked me with something. And you're just in these mad places. Sorry. You're in these mad fucking places. I've, uh, some of the places I've been in, some of the things I've seen in these places, uh, some of the vulnerable people, uh, and I've been close to death quite quite a few times. Well, you were one of those vulnerable people. That was you. And that was your network. That, yeah. was, that was your social circle. Did that you, was my did, social circle, mate. Did you, did you forge any relationships, like solid ones with these people? Were you all just using and exploiting each other? I've got, I've got two relationships uh, with two of my mates, who I grew up with as well, who fell to heroin and crack, and they're still on it now. Um, close with them. Um, Love-hate relationship. Um, but when we see each other, it's all love. He's probably slagging me, you know, right now, slagging me out, because I'm doing well. Mm. But that's, I would be slagging him out if I was still in that position, because I was a very hateful person during addiction. Um, you know, you do, fun, you, you, do, you do, but no, no, you don't actually. I tell a lot. The only reason that me and him, those two have that relationship is because we grew up together and we have no choice. In that world of addiction, there's no, there's no real friends. There's no real loyalties. You know, I, the, the, the ones I laugh at are the, the, the two addicts who were together. Because I just feel like there's, there's no hope. How do you escape that? How would you escape that? No. Once I... I don't want to say her name. Once I got that girl on drugs, the one who I met, she quit her job for me straight away. She quit her job for me and she ended up driving me around everywhere. She made good money because whatever I made, I'd give her any clothes I, I stole or any makeup or she had it. She loved it. But her lifestyle changed and she ended up using with me. And when I went to prison, I remember I, I was on the run for about six months. This time I was, I went uh, and, and the police found me in this bed and breakfast on Cathedral Road, which is like Chelsea of Cardiff, you know? And I was like, how the fuck did they find me here? And I'll tell you why I, how they found me now. Um, I, was, I, was, I was on the run. What for? Shoplifting. Um, shoplifting. And on, on a prolific scale or, prolific. or a one-off? So, so, so I know you were prolific, but did the police know? At this stage. Yeah, so, so this is what I need to let, let clear it up for people. The, the, the prosecutions and, and, and the police said I was a professional shoplifter. But anyone who I say that, they go, fucking professional, you went to jail 10 times. I was shoplifting every single day, 365 days a year. It don't matter how much I made the previous day, even if I did have 500 pounds in my pocket, I'm still going out raising. That was my routine. That was my addiction. Shoplifting in itself was an addiction to me. It was a way of life mm. and it was a buzz. So I was doing that every single day and I was making hundreds, if not thousands a day. So to go to jail once a year for it, I, I, I thought that was pretty good going, you know? Um, and normally when, when they had me, they'd have me for a couple, you know, they'd have me for like five or six. So they'd probably wait for one and think, right, we got him there. And they wouldn't wait, you know, they'd wait until they get a few, Otherwise, if they give me one, they're only giving me four weeks, but mm. I would always get 10 months and eight months for shoplifting, which is really unfucking heard of. They're, they're, they're big sentences for shoplifting. 
but because of the quantity and the, the planning, you know, I'm not going to the local shop. I'm going out of my area. I'm going to a different country. I'm going to over the bridge to England, you know, so they, they, they didn't like that. So, um, I was wanted this time. And, um, this is about like the worry of families and stuff that, that come into play because I've done a podcast with my dad and we had to say two things that I had to say something to him that he's never heard and he had to do something to me. And I'll just quickly say this before I get to the point. Um, when I, when I was in my addiction, a lot of times things happened, things went missing in my parents' house, you know? And there was times, you know, I would probably take something, sorry. There was times I probably took stuff at, at the lowest. This is at the beginning when I was desperate. But a Breitling watch went missing out of my dad's house and also six grand, six or 10, I don't know, I, I can't remember. A lot of, you know, quite a couple thousand in an envelope went missing from my dad's uh, car. It was inside one of his jackets. Both of those times, I took the rap for it. Oh, well, I didn't take the rap. It's fucking me. I'm the smackhead in the house. It's me. But I didn't take that money and I didn't take that watch. I know who did. One time I trusted an addict to come to my house. Next thing you know, the Brighton watch goes missing. But what am I supposed to do? He's gone. I, I, you know, in that world of addiction, it's hard to track people like that, don't they? Just fuck off. So he took the Brighton watch and... The money was a girl I brought into my parents. I was too trusting. I brought a girl to my parents' home to live with me for a bit. And my dad used to take this girl to work. Yeah, in the mornings. Mm. And the one morning he come home, or the one night I was rattling in bed. And uh, he come home kicking off with me. And I said, what's the matter? You're, Where's the fucking money? I went, what are you on about? Money. I mean, you best find the fucking money or I'm going to fucking kill you. And... Uh, yeah, I, he actually kicked me out of the car if he drove me up to my nan's in England and I had to live up there. He kind of ex exiled me from Cardiff for a, for a good couple of months because of that. Um, but I never took that money. But, but as an addict, you know, to think, whoa, it's hard to, to not think it is you. And, mm. you know, I've done it a hundred times before. It is that boy who cried wolf. I genuinely didn't do it that time. So when we done that podcast, I said, dad, I got to tell you, I never took your Brighton watch and I never done that. And he went, ah, shut up. And I think he knows I never. So we had to do this, this thing in exchange, like tell us one thing that you think you should tell him. And he said, right, Cole, you know that time you was wanted. So what happened was I was on Cathedral Road, wanted, and uh, the police found me. And I thought, how the fuck did they fucking find me? And my dad said, we grasped you up. Hmm. We, 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 we sent you to jail. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my dad and my mum grasped me up to go to jail because they were worried about me. They were going on holiday. And the last thing they wanted was their son to be out running wild, doing whatever, being found dead in a fucking gutter. And the safest place for me at that time was prison. My dad grasped me up. My dad grasped me up. How did you initially feel when he told you that? Because he's now telling you as a sober, but you're straight now. Aren't yeah, you? You're yeah. clean, so you can... You if can... he told me when I was during my addiction, I would say, you're a fucking snitch, you fucking rat. Mm. Fuck off, don't speak to me. But because he did it 
through through a clear lens, I I totally see where he's coming from. And I just think she little fucker, you know, but I get it. Hmm. Yeah, I can see why he done that. Yeah. If you're completely and utterly off the rails, you wanted for prolific shoplifting. He thinks things are going missing in the house. There's only you're heading in one direction at a rate of knots, which is yeah. the morgue. Yeah, hundred percent. And do you know what's funny? Um, I've done a lot of work uh, again back to that co-cathaline stuff, um, uh, and it's about like the cocaine come down and of people who have died and all these people. I've noticed a pattern, right? Of um, Nicola Abraham, you need to check her out. She just went on Dapper's podcast. I interviewed Nicola and another two parents whose their kids killed themselves, and every time it happened was when they were away. The, fa- the one son, uh, the one father was on a stag do when his son killed himself. Nicola had the phone call when she was on holiday, killed himself. It was always when their parents was not around that they died. And it just makes me think like, do you know what? Maybe my mum and dad just had that intuitional feeling, you knowing that when they're on holiday, they're going to get that fucking phone call that he's dead. You know, I just found it weird, like, looking back now. And by that stage, they was acutely aware that you had separation anxiety. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can see how they've connected those dots. Exactly. Yeah, they'd soon you'd be in prison and you'd be dead. Yeah. Which I would say is true love. It's true love. Mm. It's true love. My dad's tried fucking everything for me, mate. Honestly, uh, yeah, he took me on holidays, you know. You're coming on holiday with us for seven days in the fucking boiling hot sun. I'm fucking roasting in Santa Susanna, rattling off heroin, sitting in the swimming pool all day because in water, you don't feel the, the 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 rattle as much. You just, I don't know. In water, it's weird. It's like as if like your bile in your stomach kind of floats and you don't feel the, 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 the detox as much. So I just sit in the sun all day. And I remember getting back on the plane, coming back to Cardiff, and I'm spewing in a bag, still rattling. I'm still not fucking totally clean. They dropped me off seven days through my withdrawal, and I'm scoring straight away. Ringing my dealer, yo, it's Cullen. Come, come see me. I want two and one. You know? Did you ever feel suicidal? I Every time I go to the police station, uh, have you ever thought about killing yourself? And they bring up this one time that I, I, I tried to kill myself. Um, took a load of drugs and uh, I stuck tissue down my throat and I was in bed and I was crying and I was a real mess I was fucked and every time you know I could get it in the back I would force a bit more and I was full of tissue and my girlfriend at the time walked in and, and seen me half unconscious with all this tissue down the back of my throat where I was trying to suffocate myself. That was the only time I tried to take my own life. Uh, and I, I was about 20 then, living in a flat with a girl, start of my heroin addiction, like one of those lonely nights where I got no money and fuck my life, my family don't want to speak to me. And yeah, I just felt like there was nothing else I could do. Um, yeah, that's sad. It's sad. But you've come a long way since that sadness. And I was going to ask, did you ever form a romantic relationship with another user? Um, like I said. Um, that wasn't a user before you met. Yeah, yeah. Romanticized before and then. Yeah. Did you meet, did you meet another smackhead and fall in love and 
Um, not falling in love. I've had, I've had, I've had like you know, you know, girls I've slept with who are addicts, and we've had little wild parties and stuff. Some, <laughs> mate, some of the things. It, but no, no. To answer your question, I never fell in love with an addict, and we had a all-out relationship. I could, you know, I. I don't, don't say it now because I've met the love of my life, I like to think, but mm. I could have met the love of my life a hundred times. When I used to go students, Studentville, oh, I don't know if you can help me. I've lost my fucking bank card. I'm trying to get to my uni halls in Cardiff and oh, stay with me the night. And girls, beautiful girls, would invite me back to their fucking halls, stay with them or their shared house, stay with them. As soon as they're sleeping, I'm in the fucking drawers. Many, 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 many phone, phone, phone. See you later, gone. Mm. I did it to about fucking, I did it to loads. <laughs> Terrible. And did you only feel remorse when you become clean? Oh, I knew it was wrong when I'd done it and I felt remorse and guilt um, straight away. What's the worst thing you've ever done to get money to score gear? I don't know. There's a one of the worst. Something just comes to mind and think, I can't believe I've fucking done that. I, Shame on me. It, it, it. Robin from a charity shop. They had a fucking bell staff wax, two grand fucking bell staff brand new jacket in a charity shop. And I took it. I know I think he was priced at like 20 quid in there as well. So I could have I could have made money on it if I just bought it, but I didn't have the money. That's one of the worst ones, things I've, I think the worst I've done. But there's one that stands out with this girl, this Chinese girl, um, exchange student, two of them actually. I've said the one before, the one, she gave me a 50 pound note. I said, I'm, I said, I'm going to my uni halls. Please, can you help me um, get home? She gave me a 50 pound note. She said, promise me you give it back. I said, yeah, I'll give you my details. Um, Went on my way. Obviously, I wasn't ever going to pay her back again. Two days later, I've gone back to the same uni campus, wearing the same clothes. Two day and I always swap my clothes, but I must not have clicked that I wore the same outfit, same location. But it worked in my favour because all I heard was, hey, 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 you cheat me, you cheat me. And I thought, fuck, is that girl? What am I going to say? And I realised I had the same clothes on and I thought, I went, oh, hey, hey, how are you? How are you? She went, oh, you cheat me. You said you'd give me my money back. You didn't give me my 50 pounds. I trust you. I said, you're not going to believe what happened. She said, what, what? I said, I haven't left. I've, I lost the 50 pounds. I stayed in that bus, bus stop over there for two days. I can't get home. She went, I don't believe you. I said, I swear to God. I said, look, I'm in the same clothes. She went, right. She said, if I give you 20 pounds, will you go back home and give me 70 pounds? I said, of course I will. She gave me the 20 pounds and she never saw me again. She gave me 70 quid in two days, twice, trusted me. And I fucking bumped her twice. It's insane how you can go from standing in someone's kitchen, thinking you're a Friday night hero, drinking bottles of beer, sniffing lines of gear, exchanging stories, thinking you're James Bond and everything's going groovy. And then as quick as you know it, you're robbing charity shops, burgling people's houses, exploiting females that trust you. And that's the substance at work, not the person. There are 
pieces of shit out there, of course. Yeah, yeah. You're certainly not that. That was definitely the substance at work, not you. I remember the time, uh, oh, I fucking hate, I hate weapons. I hate knives, hate them. You know, um, I've, I've, I know people who have lost to knife crime, you know? Um, I was on my estate. I've got a habit. I'm with this girl. And uh, one of my, one of the boys I know is a weed dealer lives around the corner. So I see all the people who goes buying weed off him. And I've seen someone who I knew from school, grew up with them. And I've, when they've gone to pull up together weed, I've jumped out of the bush with a knife and robbed them at knife point. And it, you know, it, it, it's not even like it's, 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 you know, a lot of money, someone intimidating, you know, or I've done him there. They're people I know who are going to give me the fucking money, but they can't believe that they Cullen, what are you doing? Like, this ain't you. Mm. Robbing them at knife point for 30 quid. Desperation. Yeah, it's it's stuff like that, that 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 are the worst things I've done. And again, getting someone on drugs is like I I can't live with myself. That they they're the things with the hardest things to overcome. There's you know, getting I don't want to say getting others, but you know, kind of being an influence and having other people smoke with me. Mm. That's one thing. The other thing is taking advantage of vulnerable people. The other thing is robbing people who you know you can rob. And I think the other thing that's the worst thing, which I'll never uh, kind of live, live, live myself with, is I sold my mum's engagement ring. And I sold, uh, I, I don't know if it was an engagement, my grandmother, my grandmother and my granddad's ring as well. And, she, and my nan had me up there to do a rattle at the time. Like she was trying to get me better. And you know what my nan used to do, love her? Like she was so naive. Um, she wrote like, right. I, I went up to Northampton the first time. And as I've got out of the car, I'm rattling. First person I see, I know he's a smoker. Yo, yo, come here, bro, come here. And my dad lives on these like, terraced housing. Come in the doorway. He's looking at me like, who the fuck are you? Weird Welsh accent. Have you got any tings? He's like, well, I said, have you got any tings? He's like, who are you? I said, listen, I'm from Cardiff. I'm fucking rattling. I'm doing a rattle in my hands. Please help me. I'll buy, I'll buy, I'll buy, I'll buy you something, you know? He went, he opened this rap. He was only the fucking main dealer in Kettering Town at the time. Fucking had like fucking a hundred raps of both. So I thought, jackpot. Mm. You know, I meant to be there to get clean. So I ends up buying off him. I goes in. The, this is all in this is all in the space of like three minutes as well. You know, you know how addicts we were. Quick, quick, quick. My mum and dad are in the house saying, right, well, he's gonna stay here for a couple of months. They haven't even seen me do this outside. I'm just pretending to get my bags. I've scored. So I've gone in the house and, you know, for a week, my grandmother thought, and my mum and dad ringing up, how is he? Yeah, he's on his second day. You what I call? Yeah, I'm all right. I was booting upstairs for the fucking five days. I wasn't doing no rattle. And then when, when I started rattling, my nan was like, how are you only now starting to be ill? And I just opened up to my nan and said, listen, I've been buying, like I said, it's hard. And do you know what my nan did? She went, right, this is what we're going to do. What's the dealer's number? His name was Soggy. Shout out to Soggy. I don't know if he's still about. Probably get arrested now for this. <laughs> <laughs> she went, give me his number. She rang him up. She went, hello, Soggy. She went, I'm uh, Cullen's grandmother. She, 
Yeah, the one you saw the other day. Yeah. Can you come to the house? Now, I don't know. He must have thought, what the fuck's going on here? But he came, come to the house, right? So my nan, she lived on this terrace house. And on the corner was a premier with an ATM outside. She went, right. You are soggy. There's my card. Can you draw me out 150 quid? She trusted the dealer, who's a smoker as well, to go and draw 150 quid out. He was like that. Okay, come back. She went, right. How much heroin can I get with this 150 quid? He went, uh, are you sure? She went, how much can I get? She bought all the drugs off him, a couple of load of wraps, like probably about 200, you know, about 20, 10 bags. Give, give me like 20 for 150. She went, thank you. Thank you. She went, I'm not going to ring you again, but thank you for your service. That's my nan, yeah? She's Scottish, my nan, some mad jock. He goes, she goes, right, Cullen, this is what we're going to do. I go, what? Why are you buying this? She went, right. We're going to start this week. You have one bag a day. The next week, you're going to have half. Then after that, you're going to have a quarter until you... My nan actually thought that she would wean me off heroin by buying me heroin and doing it that way. Do you know what I mean? I, I just thought, fair play to this woman. That would but, make sense. That makes sense to me. But it's not. I'm taking her for a ride there. And with heroin, it's not like alcohol. Like I said, with alcohol, you can die off... Um, uh, alcohol withdrawal. So you have to, doctors and services will say to you, wean yourself off. Don't just drop dead because you could die. With heroin, you can just uh, stop dead. And at the time it was in my head. That makes sense. I will do that. But it never, ever worked. By the time, you know, I, I, I was, you know, nah, let me have two of them. They start holding me here and You know, after the week, I'm out scoring again. That first time I went up to get myself sorted, I caused fucking mayhem. Mayhem. I got jumped in a trap house by these fucking, these, these lads in a fucking, in the middle of Kettering. I had murder up there. My, coming home to my nan with fucking blood all over my face, some stranger walking me to my nan's. I, I caused mayhem up there, like, and I almost fucking led her into an early grave. That's when I took her fucking ring and her money. You know, and she had me another two or three times after that, you know, over the space of like four years. You know, it's just, it was some, some low shit I'd done. Part of the 12-step program is admitting the low things that you've done and reaching out to the people and confessing and, and, and apologising. So it's, 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 it's essential yeah. as part of your recovery to be as honest as you are now. Yeah. There's no mileage in, in line anymore, no, no, is no, there? No, no. no and... and um, I just want to put it out there because I have said on my podcast, like our 12 steps wasn't for me, hasn't been for me, but there's a lot of people out there it works for. And I love 12 steps for that. You know, I'm, I'm on the angle of it don't matter how you get there in your recovery, whatever works for you, mm. you fucking do. But there's a lot of things in 12 steps that I take into my recovery. And that's one of them. It is admitting my wrongs and trying to build those bridges there's a lot of bridges I haven't built. I'm hoping they are just naturally being built just because what people see what I do now and where I am, you know? And I still get people messaging me saying, I get people messaging me. Yo, Cullen, do you remember that time you robbed my phone? And I'm like, no. Yeah, you, you asked if I could, you could use my phone and I, I let you and you walked off. Yeah, things like that. Things that I don't even know because there was so many wrong things I'd done. But... The ones I know that I've done wrong, who I can reach out to, I do. And I think the ones I can't, 
my way of paying them back is just being as open and honest about it, recognizing where I went wrong and trying to inspire others to change. And you was never ever going to change until you got clean, was you? Mate, <laughs> every time it was for someone else or for something else. Every time I went to prison, it was like unfinished business. Mm. Like, what were all your prison sentences for shoplifting? All for shoplifting. Every single one? Well, I think like four of them were recalls because I didn't, but the original offence was shoplifting. And, and how many times have you been to jail for shoplifting? 10, 11 times, yeah. And how many years have you like? Oh, I did about three years behind the door in total. So not much, but a weekend's enough in fucking jail. Do you know what I mean? Oh, Especially me. Three, three years is more than enough time. Yeah, yeah, it spent, is a long time. To, to be spent in a, in, in, a, in a little cell thinking about heroin, thinking about what you've done, yeah. thinking about who you're missing, thinking about who's missing you. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've, I, I've, been, I, I've been to some mad jails. Like Birmingham was a mad jail. I didn't spend long there, about a month, but it was on my way to another prison. That was wild. Stokey, fucking mad jail. Um, Cardiff, my local. You know, I met a lot of good people in there as well. It's a shame. But, you know, I remember the first time I went to jail and everyone was like, is this your first time? And I went, no. This is my only time. Hmm. It's not my first time. It's my only time. I was adamant I was never going back to jail. I was adamant I was never going to jail until it happened. And then I thought, that's me done. And I remember my missus, the one who I first got on the drug, she stuck by me on my first two sentences. And then she said, I can't do this anymore. But I remember her meeting me on the, uh, the gates of Stokeith. And uh, she booked me a, uh, the Vale Hotel, this really posh hotel with all all the footballers stay when you know they they play in wales and whatever i got you we got a room in the Vale hotel we got this we got that we got i can't wait for us to start a new life yeah i was adamant i wanted to change my life but i had unfinished business with heroin i i i didn't have that one last smoke where i go right i'm gonna have to say goodbye to you now so let's have let's have one more last dance and i'll see you soon I never had that with it and you never will have that with it, but you think you will have that with it. So when they arrested me, you know, off the off chance and then my whole prison sentence, I'm thinking, oh, fucking like I do with a bag. Oh, just on one last go. That's one my, that's the kind of mentality I was in when I got released. So when she come and got me, this is what we did. We drove all the way back to Cardiff, went to Cardiff Bay, bought, bought a nice outfit, and then we were going to the hotel for the night. Remember, Dad, have a nice night. Yeah, we will. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. We drive down the uh, down the hill off the estate. I go pull over there. I need to go and see Bigsy. She went, no, you're not. I went, pull over there. I want to go and see Bigsy. And uh, God rest his soul, he's dead now. But he was a user who lived in those flats that I knew he would know who's got things. I said, listen, I'm doing it once. I'm doing it tonight. I'm having a bit of fun. And I promise you, that is me done with it. And I spent the night in that hotel, which was meant to be a romantic night with my new, my, 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 my you know, my future partner, smoking things in the fucking hotel age. It's like, what the fuck? And she still stuck by me. And I think, I, I don't even think I had one day clean when I first got out. I think the next day I probably didn't have anything, but then I just went straight every day to smoking. Because as soon as you have it that one time, it suppresses, you know, it, it, it suppresses you. You don't realize what you're doing wrong. You, it doesn't realize how bad this is. And you get back into that rut very quickly. Did you have clean stints when, when you was in prison though? Um, 
once or twice, but I was either on a methadone script uh, or I was sniffing subbies in there. Or I think the longest I've been clean was about four months and that was in jail. You know, with, away from the temptations of I can get drugs whenever I want. Cool. That's a lot. That's a long time to be clean to throw it all away, isn't it? When you come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, I'm putting weight on. I'm looking healthy. I'm thinking about what I could do in my future. I, mate, I used to come out with a bag full with business plans, everything. Like really. Well, you got a very good active brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're high, you 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 function on a high frequency. Yeah. So all these things, I'm thinking like I'm going to do this when I get out. I'm going to do that. That <laughs> didn't happen. Didn't happen. No. Never. Never happened. My dad took me to London to have a private, uh, you know, he's trying everything on the internet, like, you know, what's this naltraxone? It's an implant, 1,500 pounds, 900 pound deposit. You've got to be off heroin for five days to have this implant. Otherwise, you could be violently ill. He goes up to London. We stay in Belgravia, the Eccleston Hotel, this five-star fucking hotel. Plush meal, takes me to Harrods in the morning, takes me to Harvey Nicks, proud of you, son. Buys me fucking a pair of Y3s, this international barber fucking coat, loads of shorts, loads of polos. She's a new, your new life, son. I'm glad you're doing this. It goes to the fucking I'm booting. I'm booting in the toilets, like still. Mm. You know, I, I had this thing that when people say you shouldn't have heroin for five days, when you I'm just thinking they're saying this because they want to be arsy about it, not realizing that it's a medical thing. Like if, if you have heroin, when you have this, you could die or you could be physically ill. I'm just thinking it's a procedure, you know? So don't come in without eating, you know, I don't eat for 24 hours. Yeah, right, I'll have a fucking, you know, that's what I thought. Mm. I went in there, they went, sorry, Mr. Mace. They piss tested me before I had the implant. I don't know what to say, Mr. Mace. Your, your son's still got heroin in his system. My dad lost the deposit, 900 quid. Fucking drove back home to Cardiff, awkward as fuck, bag full of brand new clothes. Mm. The so poor, might- sorry, the poor son even stopped in the fucking services, bought me a Burger King. <laughs> you oh. know, he was that good for me, like even, mm. you know. And then we went back a week later, no, tell a lie, oh, sorry Lee, a week late, while well, he said the doctor, because he felt so bad about what he went wrong, I'm going to give you these tablets to take. When you know he's five days clean, give him these tablets. This is the oral form. Get him on the course and then get him back up for the injection. Fucking five, the fifth day came. My dad goes, you meant to take that in that tablet today? I went, yeah, give it a year. Again, I was not stop smoking. Violently ill. Violently ill. Straight away. Spewing, shitting. So when you, when you, when you were using heroin and we're talking lots of it, you must have been able to hide it really well. Yeah. For your, uh, da- for your dad not to know, because when I think of a heroin user, I think of someone sitting in a crack den on a sofa with springs poking out, sure. pissing shit everywhere, and they're, they're gouging out. They're, 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 yeah, so like- That's how I times. picture a smackhead. The, the telltale from my dad was how I smelt because of the smell of heroin. Mm-hmm. If I had brown on my teeth, the gear on my teeth, um, my eyes were pinned. And of course, if I started gouging. So if I've come home from a- I've been out all day doing my thing and I come home and I sit on the sofa with them for an hour and I start gouging. They know I'm on the gear. But like I always did try and keep priding myself. People see photos of me. I've got scabs all over my body. Mm. I didn't have any from there though because I'm trying to present to people that I'm not a drug addict. 
on the outside, you know, I still got the same teeth and, you know, I didn't inject, I smoked. So I should have no teeth really, but there's no excuse for an addict not to have their teeth. They sh you should still be able to brush your teeth. And I think I'd done that well. Like I still tried to take pride in myself. But the difference with someone like that and me is I still had my parents home to go to. Mm. I wasn't homeless. I could have a shower if I wanted to. I could wear different clothes if I wanted to. And I think that's what enabled me. I think my mum and dad enabled me. I didn't want to change. I didn't need to change. I didn't hit rock bottom. And they had no idea that was enabling you? No. There was, there was times I was on the streets for a week or two. They'd have me fucking back. And they knew you was on the streets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they were probably hoping it would teach you a lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and stop. Yeah. Mm. So how many years before you got clean, I mean, we're going to move on to how you got clean. How many years were you using heroin for? Uh, just over a decade. Just ten, over 10 years. 10 years. And the first five years, you was an amateur. Second five years, you, yeah. was, you was a seasoned pro. Yeah, like, yeah, like I, was, I was making a lot of money. Um, I was good at, I was a good shoplifter. Like I said, in the morning, uh, night before, I didn't tell you, night before, um, planned my route. Where are we going? Manchester. Okay. Drive up to Manchester, five in the morning, four in the morning. Um, straight from Manchester, start typing in on Google Maps, cooperative shops. And then we did every shop. We tried to avoid the city centers or the rough, like kind of deprived areas because they're getting battered by the Manchester smokers. Or the, you know, we all, it's mad. Our travel, it's the same in business. You get a in bounce of, you know, you get a building contract firm from Cardiff working in fucking Guildford. Mm. And the Guildford firm are working in Cardiff. Just don't make sense, do it? Just stick to your own. But obviously with shoplifting, you're known. So you have to travel out. So I'd go on Google Maps, type in cooperatives in the nice posh, towns and villages and I'd work my way down every shop until I got South Wales. If the car's full at Birmingham, I'd go into Birmingham, I'd look for a corner shop, I'd go, yo, I got alcohol, you're in the car, do you want to buy it? Random corner shop. Nine times out of 10, they say, yeah, sell it. Got a grand in my pocket. Let's start again, Birmingham to Cardiff. That's what I would do, go straight home, sell it to my, my local buyers who would buy everything off me, split it with my driver, Party for the night. Start all over again the next morning. The thing is, going out, living on the edge, taking those kind of risks, is another addiction, is gambling. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, because addiction- I love the mate. Addictions normally come in freeze, don't they? Sex, drugs, gambling, alcohol, you know, they, they do normally the, come- the, But they, that, was, that would be me then. The drugs, yeah. the sex, and the shoplifting. Because, yeah. you know, those, I say I go back and party, I'm going back to a fucking flat where there's a chick, you know, and, I, I, and I'm doing what I'm doing, you know? It, it was that buzz around it. I couldn't go out clubbing with my mates and go on boys' holidays, so mm -hmm. my way was doing it another way. And without, so were you sleeping with the prostitutes during the dens? Um, <laughs> um, I, I slept with one or two prostitutes. I never fucking pay the prostitute. Like you know, I give her a couple of things and we dab it. But I, I, I done it right with girls who didn't smoke. Like you know, I didn't really go for the fucking the, the smokers. I, I, I went with normal girls and then they ended up becoming druggies. Mm. Sounds sad, I know, but that's what it was. Because um, I thought I didn't. I thought it was better than that. I always thought it was better than others. Although I'd help them and share my stuff with them, I thought it was better than them. And that's bad. You sound like you was the leader of the pack. Um, 
I don't or, the, or, think the, or, or the Robin Hood of the Smack. I, I definitely was. That's what I mean. You, you I was the I was the Prince of the Thieves. Hmm. I'll go out. I'll risk my liberty. I'll do this, and I'll make sure I yeah. come back with all the all these goodies yeah, for everyone yeah. to share and smoke. Uh, that was me. Mm. So apart, so shoplifting every day is gambling. It's adrenaline. It's a rush. It's another. It's another buzz, which can sound glamorous to people. But obviously, by no means was that decade of your life that was stolen by heroin glamorous. So before we talk about you getting clean, because yeah. that's when the inspirational stuff comes in. Just one of the few terrible worst memories of being a heroin addict that contributed towards you deciding I'm going to go clean were? There was a few, um, I, 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 and there's a few relating to deaths. Um, you know, I think you might have all been filling games to me. I had a nice few easy escapes. I think every time I was in a police cell and I was going to prison, I was sorry wasn't sorry for what I was done. I was sorry that I got caught and it felt like it was the end of the world for me. Um, but there was two or three occasions that I thought, this is fucking wild. I need to get out of this world. One time I found a dead body, man jumped off, off the fucking Kingsway building in town. I was out there tapping for money and an addict had jumped off the building and I found him and I was thinking, why? If I wasn't here doing this, I wouldn't have witnessed this. Mm. It affected me a lot, that did, really affected me. I couldn't even stay and ring the police. I had a warrant out for my arrest. And you know, if I stayed, I was going to jail. So that really paid something on me, like what the fuck am I doing? Mm. Um, the second one was, there was a man, uh, Carl Donnelly, Yucca. He was a drinker and a user, well-respected in Cardiff, a good guy just fell off, you know, at a certain age, just, he, he lived his life and just wanted to do drugs type of thing, you know? Um, in my area, there's a lot of drug use, there's a lot of drugs culture. Um, and basically these people in the block of flats he was living with were every time he got paid his pip, his money, they would, fucking come around and use like, you know, take his money type of thing. So he said, so I was going into town one day on a bus and he's on the bus stop and he jumps on and he comes to me. And this is what I'm saying about, I'm that guy who fucking looks after people and helps me. He goes, oh, hello, what's happening to me? He said, oh man, I'm, I'm fucking so down. Can I come with you? And I said, mate, I'm going out on a graph. You know, I don't, I, I does my own thing. Please, I promise I'll hold my weight. I will do it. I'll, meaning I'll come out and I'll fucking shoplift with you. Because anytime I did go with anyone in a car, they were pants. And I just thought, what is the point in them coming with me, right? Not making nowhere near as much as I am, but I'm splitting the money with them. Mm. So he's like, please, I'll come with you. I, I promise I'll make my money. I said, well, what's the matter? He went, I get paid tonight at fucking gone 12. And everyone's in the flat and they're waiting for me and they're going to take my money off me. And I don't even want, not only do I not want to go, go there, I don't want to stay there tonight and I've got nowhere to stay. Can you help me? So I phoned up. I knew a few gaffs around the area and they all welcomed me. The same as I always had a driver. I always had a flat to go because they all knew that I had things. I rung up this girl. I said, listen, I've got a guy here. His name's Carl. You don't want to go home tonight. Yeah. He gets paid at 12 and he thinks they're going to bully him for his money. Can he stay up here? I'll come over tonight. I'll pass through with him. Can he stay over? 
yeah, 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 no worries, no worries, no worries. So we went out, even though he was getting paid at 12, he still come out with me and made a raise. I made about three, 400 quid. And he, he, he took a couple of things. I thought, fair play. We went back to the flat. We're smoking. I'm sharing the stuff with him. Now I told you, I'll always keep one or two things for the next morning, innit, yeah? So we had a good night and it was me, him, and it was these two girls. They were two Nicolas. The one Nicola lived on ground floor, the one lived on top floor. He was going to stay in the ground floor one. We drank all night. We smoked all night. It was, it was a good night. Like, no, these people are all older than me. They're in their like 40s. I'm like 20 fucking five, like, you know, but we're all there listening to 80s. We're all like saying, let's, let's pick a song we like and tell us why you like the song. We were all having a good time and whatever. And he was like, thank you so much, Carl, for this. I really fucking appreciate this. Thank you so much. Um, come to the end of the smoke and I, I was going to go home and, and the Nicola who lived upstairs was like, I'll oh, come upstairs with me. She, whatever. So I went upstairs. I went, right, I'm going now, mate. I'm done, right? Nick, promise me you'll look after him. Yeah, 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 no worry. He's going to be my gimp for the night. He's going to be my little gimp. That's what she was saying. Well, okay. Um, that was that. So I went upstairs with this girl five minutes late and I made a knocking on the door. It's, it's him. Oh, what are you doing? I went on. I said, go back downstairs. I've got you a place to stay there. Just go. Come on, smoke that last thing with me. Smoke that last thing. I said, mate, I ain't got another last thing with you. Come on, I come with you. I come with you. I know you've got a last thing. I said, listen. And he was on about crack, he was. And I didn't have no crack. I only had gear left. I said, listen, I've gone and left. If I did, I would have smoked with you. Fuck off now, please. Just go down. Or... That's it. Kept on knocking. So I had to say to that Nicola, I said, look, I'm not staying here with him knocking. I'm going home, right? Take it. So I leave her flat and I go downstairs and he's following me out on the block. Come on, what are you being like that for? Come on, he's getting rowdy now. I'm like, you cheeky cunt. I've got you a place to stay for the night, right? I've smoked all my shit with you and now you're trying to call me a liar over a fucking pipe. Nah, you're a fucking dick. I said, listen, get the fuck away from me. Now this guy used to be a fucking karate double dan black belt, whatever, isn't he? Whatever. He's like, come on, hey, I'll fucking do you and all that. And I, I, I kind of got a bit fucking... I got angry with him and I went to fucking like that and he flinched. I went, you fucking little rat, fuck off. And he went, oh, go on, go on, go and do some fucking cartwheels, you fucking weirdo. Now what he meant by that was, Golden Polis. My OCD. Yeah. And it fucking hit me when he said that. I thought, who the fuck are you talking about how I act when I, when I, you know, with my OCD? I went, you know what? I said, why don't you go and fucking die, you little weirdo? Go and die. I don't know why I said it. I don't know why I said it, but that was it. Goes on. For the little fucker. Next day, I goes to another flat, not, lot, not far away from there. Yo, Cullen, Cullen, you heard about Carl? I said, what? You went, he's dead. I went, what? You went, yeah, he's dead. I said, no, he's not. I said, I was with him last night. I gave him a flat in. He went, Nicholas. I went, yeah. He went, he's been, they've been found dead in Nicholas. He fucking died. And my last words to that guy was, go and fucking die. And I thought, was that, was that me saying that, wishing that into existence? Like, it really affected me, that did. Really affected me, badly. Mm. And that was another time. This man asked me for refuge. I got him refuge and he dies in the place I seek refuge. And I also told him to go and fucking die. Now, there were some suspicious circumstances around that they thought that Nicola might have been involved. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it was natural causes. Not a fatal um, dose. 
That's what I think it was. Like when I say natural, I mean in the world of drugs, it was an <laughs> overdose because apparently there was withdrawals in his ATM at three in the morning. So he obviously went back to his, I got paid at 12. Let's go and get some drugs, hmm. you know? And uh, there was talk, he was found black and blue and everyone thought he meant beaten black and blue, but I think they meant he was just cold. Um, but then a few months later, Nicola, the girl, she died in that flat as well. So the two of them who I knew there died. And then the final, maybe I'll tell you the final straw what made me turn my life around really and was partly because of these bad things I've seen that made me realize like this ain't fucking me. I started to, my body was really deteriorated. Like I said, I, did, I only injected once in my life and that was early on. And it was a blessing really because I was scared of needles and I didn't know what I was looking for. I smoked all day. I was dosed up to my eyeballs with heroin when I did the injection. So I didn't really feel it. Having if I, Seeing if it was the first thing I'd done in the morning, my first hit, I probably would have, you know, loved injecting because it's all about that intense rush you get when you're doing it. I didn't really feel it. So that was the only time I'd done it. So when I was smoking, not only was I smoking heroin, I was smoking crack, smoking fag after fag. My chest is still, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it really. It's really bad now. But I used to go asleep and, and like, Girls I'd stay with would wake me up in the middle of the night, like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'd be like, what's the matter? And they're like, I thought you was dying. Like, listen to your chest. You need to get that checked out. Really bad. So there was that. And it was also, I can't do jail no more. The last jail sentence I'd done was hell. I was put on security lockdown. I was toed up with my uncle. We were both toed up. Fucking hell. Yeah. And, and he, you only got to Google him on, um, Google him, you know, and, and, and he's got like, you know, um, supplying HMP Park with a fishing rod. He's, he's always security threat because he's been known to be throwing parcels over the wall for people. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm Mace and I'm tuned up with Mace. So you're not going education. You're not getting a job. You're on closed visits. So that last sentence I'd done was really a fucking headache for me, you know? And I thought, I can't, I'm, I'm 29 and I'm locked in a cell 24 fucking seven with my fucking uncle who's doing my fucking headache. You know, so that was that, that. That was there, and then lockdown came, and I got um, me and my driver. We got caught coming back from Hereford one day. We just got greedy. We got greedy. The car was full. We literally the car was full of goods. We must have had about ten grand in there, and we said, "Should we do one more stop?" And we didn't need to, but we did. We went to this shop that sold rab coats. We were like waterproof rabs, so no faces. Mm -hmm. We went in there and we took about six of them. And it was in a place called Ross on Wye. It's a small uh, town on the River Wye, coming back to South Wales on the M50. And uh, as we're coming home, they've obviously fucking got our registration and put us on the fucking NPRs or whatever they're called. And as we got to the Celtic Manor, the Celtic Manor is like our, it's where they played the Ryder Cup. A couple of years back, it's a big grand hotel in South Wales. It's just off the M50 coming into Newport. And on the roundabout, there was three T5s, police, guys. I said, that's for us. Mm. He said, shut up. I said, I'm telling you now, 
there for us. I said, we fucked it today. And I remember I was rattling as well. I was on my way home, fucking withdrawing from Halloween. I just wanted to get over. I thought we got fucking loads here. And uh, as he comes around the roundabout, they come off the fucking roundabout, they're behind us. I said, don't go on the fucking motorway. I said, don't go on the motorway. You and let's just get back to Cardiff. I said, turn back on the motorway, please. And go to the McDonald's on the roundabout. Lucky we did, because if we carried on going on the motorway, they would have pulled us in Cardiff and I would have got remanded. I got bailed because I was in a different city that I wasn't known. I was in Newport. Um, so we went back around the roundabout. They followed us. I said, I told you, we're fucked. So they had us. I got bailed, unheard of. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm prolific. You know, they know that I'm a heroin addict. So if they bail him, whenever the court date is, he's going to carry on shoplifting till that court date. So what we need to do is we need to remand him. But I didn't get remanded. I got bail. Went back up to Hereford. They gave me a suspended sentence and tag. I thought, that's me done. I, I remember the last jail sentence I had. I just don't want to do this no more. And at this time, my dad knew what I was doing. You know, it's just 10 years of it now. They've tried so much. So it got to a point where my dad would take me to school rather than me be on my fucking own two in the morning down the docks. Uh, you know, he'd give me 20 quid year and year to fix myself. So it got to a point where I said, dad, listen, I can't do this no more. I, I need to sort my head out, but I just need time to work out what I'm going to do. Can you fucking... Uh, can you pay for my habit? And my dad, for when I when I got sentenced, for about a month or two, he was funding my habit. And this is during lockdown. Um, I guess a phone call off my driver. Listen, bro, we need to go out, mate. I need I need some money. You need money. I know you need money because you're bumming off your dad every day. Let's go out. And I said, listen, no, I can't. I can't do it. I don't want to go to jail. I got tag. I can't afford to have a hiccup. He taught me round to it. Anyway, we decided to do one more go. We go out on a raise. I said, listen, I'm not doing Wales. I'm not doing Ross on Y. We need to go somewhere else. So we decided to go down like Somerset Way, down the southwest of England. We've done it before, but not as much. Wasn't I never had no comebacks from there. So I felt quite comfortable going down there. So we went out. That way. And this is the thing. People, you know, during lockdown, people think because it was coronavirus, Oh, you can't shoplift no more. Let, let me tell you, I never made more money than I did during lockdown. Because for the first time ever, I was allowed to wear a mask and no one would say nothing. You know, it's funny. I, I was actually breaking the law, but I was abiding the law. <laughs> I was abiding the law at the same time. So for the first time ever, I was allowed to wear a mask. You know, people wanted to stay 10 foot away from you. You know, as if you were shoplifting. Oh my God, he's a drug addict. Don't go near him. He got COVID. So like I was, I was making loads and during lockdown, that first lockdown before I got clean, the weather was beautiful and everyone was fucking drinking. Mm. How many alcoholics were formed during that lockdown? Yeah, no shortage. It was insane. So everyone was just like, give me some alcohol, Cole, give me alcohol. So I was making a lot of money um, and sunglasses. Everyone wanted sunglasses. So um, yeah, so we went out one last day, we smashed it. Now. During this time, because it's lockdown, I'm on a methadone script. And I've been on methadone many, many times. It's a farce in my eyes. But we can talk about that another time. I'm on a methadone script and I'm getting weekly takeouts. Every week, my dad would take me to the clinic to get my takeouts just in case I sold it, lost it. 
you know, he always wanted to make sure I had my meth safe because, you know, it's, 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 it's dangerous. Meth, methadone's a strong drug. If it gets on the wrong hands and it's got colored mace on there, you could get in trouble if they die. So he'd always make sure he took me down there. Happens to be the day I'm going out shoplifting. It's my takeout. Hang on a minute, Cole. I've got to take you to get your meth. I said, Dad, listen, I've got to get up on the road early. I'm on tag. I've got to be home early. So I've got to leave early. Oh, no, 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 no. Anyway, I talked him around to it. I'm going to get it. I promise it'll all be good. I'll have my meth with me when I come home later. So anyway, he goes out, goes out, does our raising. I managed to get back in time, sell, sell the goods or sell a bit of the goods, score the drugs and get, I think I was like a minute late on my tag. What do you think I done though? I forgot the fucking meth. I left it in my mate's car. I rings him up. Yo, listen, I've left my meth in your car. Please, I beg you, I beg you, please put it in your house, keep it safe. Yeah, 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 no worries, no worries, no worries. Now we don't, he's ne he never took any, any drugs, anything like that anyway. But um, I trusted him with it. Like, you know, he only took crack. He never took any downers. So um, in the morning I wakes up, my dad goes, where's your meth? I went, I left it in his car. He went, you fucking idiot, I fucking told you. Bring him up now. And he was kicking off my dad and I didn't know why. He was like, bring him up now, go and get it. So I rings him up, his missus answers the phone. Hiya, Colin, I? I said, yeah, everything all right, is he there? Oh, he won't wake up, he won't. He, he, I've been trying to wake him up since five this morning, he won't wake up. I said, Okay. I said, well, I'm coming over because my meth's here. Well, this is the thing, see, Cole. We had an argument last night and uh, we had an argument because he smoked all his uh, drugs and he ended up selling the rest of your stuff in the car to go and get some more stuff. And I'd say to him, no, don't wait, wait for Cullen. We had a massive argument. And when he came in the, when he came in the house, when we were arguing, he, he, he brought a bottle of your meth and said, I'm going to drink this, threatening me to kill himself sort of thing. That's what she said. And I said, nah, you're full of shit. I don't believe you. She was an actual addict and I still believe to this day that, that she did take it. But he drank a bottle of Jack Daniels, she said, and he's been using loads of, loads of drugs. I goes over there, he's dead, he's fine, he's all good. He's breathing, you know? So I goes upstairs, I get uh, my meth, I goes, I thought I'll leave him to it. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to him tomorrow or later. I'll find out the truth. But I thought she took the mess. Um, that night, I guess a phone call off my old man that I, won't, I don't like saying his name, but he's dead. My, my mate, like he's dead. I, I, I said, what? I said, no way. When he's, he's dead. They, he's fucking dead. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've heard that before that, that he's dead or they found him dead. And, it, you know, it, it's never a nice feeling. But this, it just, it, it's like I got the same way of having crack or heroin. Something just fucking hit me. And I, I don't know what it was, but I started getting this weak feeling all around me. It was like my immune system dropped. And uh, straight away, I started getting these bad stabbing pains in the back of my chest. Like I couldn't breathe by my lungs. And uh, it was it was that bad that, like I said, I, I always avoided doctors, but I had to ring a doctor because I was really fucking worried. I thought, have I taken something? And if he took something that's making us ill, is it COVID? I didn't even believe in COVID. 
But I'm asking this question because it's due in this paranoid time of, of lockdown. So I rang the, uh, the doctor. He said, you need to come down. We need to do a checkup. They checked me the same day he passed. They went, right, you need to go to Landock Hospital. You need to go up there right now. You need to get tested. I said, is it that serious? She said, you might have a severe infection. You need to go up. You're struggling to breathe. So I went up there. I had all these bloods taken. He said, yeah, you've just got an infection in your, in your lung. Here's some antibiotics. See you on your way. I went home. I go home, my head is shot to pieces. My, 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 my best mate, my, my, my friend who I have, we've done jail together. We've driven all around the country. Like me and him were co-defendants and, and uh, more than just work partners. Like we were friends, you know, for a long time is dead. All sorts going through my mind. Anyway, I goes to bed, my, my chest killing. Goes to bed, I wakes up at three in the morning uh, it felt like an, a, a hallucination, but it wasn't. I was just like, didn't know where the fuck I was. Couldn't breathe. Couldn't breathe. <gasps> Literally felt like I was suffocating. I managed to crawl out of bed, scream to my mum and dad. I can't breathe. I'm dying. I wakes up three days later in hospital. Uh, I woke up with like needles in both arms, like two in each, you know. Arms, I got a mask on. I tries to take the mask off. I can't breathe because it's back on. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? What's wrong? They won't tell me. They don't know what's wrong. They're testing me. Uh, I, I, I ended up finding out I had pleurotic pneumonia and I caught sepsis whilst in there as well. And obviously I'm withdrawing off the heroin and the methadone. I said, am I going home soon? Do you know what's the matter with me? They said, we're having to keep a close monitor on you. It was nip and tuck at first, they said. The first three days, they didn't know if I would, you know, come out of it. Um, the, 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 the tubes were antibiotics, intravenous, because the, the oral ones didn't, didn't work. They were giving me scans and stuff. Uh, and I, 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 that was my lowest point. That was me thinking that I'm no longer gonna live, I'm, I'm going to die. I remember they took me in this room and uh, they said, right, this, these are your lungs. And it was like two pictures and x-ray. And they were like dark, they were both dark. And like, say like that's one of the lungs, it was like a white patch by you. And I said, so is, is that the infection there? And they went, no, that's, that's the healthy bit. This is the infection, my whole lung, they were both infected, flooded with pleurisy. Um, they said, we, 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 we were trying, but the antibiotics are working slow. It's not coming off because all the things I've smoked all this time, you know, it gives pleurisy foil. They say you've got to burn the foil. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never did. I just wanted to smoke the fucking heroin, Jamie. I'm, what, why am I going to worry about foot burning foil? I'm smoking heroin, you know, but it, it took its toll. I ended up getting pleurisy and I know people who have died through it, but, um, they then took me in, a, in this room. They said, look, it's not working. The antibiotics and the sepsis is getting worse. We're going to try and physically withdraw the infection out with a syringe. And I've got a video of it. And they're there with a needle about this fucking big. We have like this big fucking syringe with it, trying to draw the infections out of my lungs. They were going through my back. Like I'm awake as well. It was fucking horrible. Um, and whilst I'm in there, I'm thinking all sorts. I'm having these bad dreams. I'm crying. 
you know, I'm putting blame on my friend's passing. What the fuck is going on? And uh, I, I had some sort of a spiritual awakening there, uh, awakening in there. You know, I'm not religious, but I do believe in a higher power. And I fucking pray to that higher power. And I said, please, let me get out of here in one piece. I said, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to come out with a fucking gas mask and a fucking, you know, there was in my frames, you know, with a fucking CO2 attached. I thought that was, that, that would be a good thing. Like, you know, because I didn't know if I was going to survive. Um, I said, please let me get out and I promise I will, or I won't do this again. And I promise I will tell my story to people and I will help as many people as I can. And then this little man came walking in, this little nurse, a guy called Darren. And he went, right, I've spoken to your, your nurse in uh, the, drug, the drug service. And it's known, if, you, if, 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 some, if someone finds your medication in someone else's property and they die, it's not good, mate. You know, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking, am I going to go to jail for like leaving my meth in his cans? Do you know what I mean? So they goes to me, um, right? There's two options. You can stay on your methadone script, and crack on the same as you always have been, but you'll have to pick up your methadone every single day, including weekends. You will have no life. You won't be able to go anywhere. And, and, and that's what methadone is. They're liquid handcuffs. You can't go nowhere because every day you're dependent on that dose of methadone. And, and it's hard to get takeout. You have to give clean tests all the time, which I never did, you know? So, um, and the only time they gave me weekly takeouts, this has happened. So he said, look, you can either go back on your methadone every day or you can be one of the first men in, or first people in Britain to be a guinea pig and try out this new drug, which is called Bulvadar. And now I heard about this because just before I went in, you know, there was talk of it, but no one was on it yet. And I, do you know what I thought? I, you know, I was against va forced vaccinations. Forced vaccinations at the time was a massive topic. COVID, the year to wipe us out. The first people are going to wipe out are the junkies with this fucking boot with that. That's what I thought. And I looked around me and I was on a B7 in Heath Hospital, which is like a respiratory. And everyone around me was like 80 plus. You know, they were, I'm 28, 29. Mm -hmm. Everyone around me is old age pensioners on their deathbeds. And people were dying around me. Two people died around me. And the one guy who died said to me, what have you got to lose, mate? Just try and go on the injection. What, what have you got to lose? And when I do my presentations at the police or wherever I go, I have a photo of him from hospital because without him saying, what have you got to fucking lose? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been on it. And that Darren said, he said, look around you. He said, see all these old people around you? Your insides are worse than theirs. If you go out and carry on, you are going to die. And... I thought if I do go back on the meth, I'm contradicting what I'm praying anyway, that I'm going to change my way. So why not try it? And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll try this injection and in a week's time. I'll be fucking back on the meth. But here I am talking to you now, three years later from that injection, a totally different person to who I was when I went in the hospital. And you had your first one in there. 
first one was when I left. As soon as I left, so I was stayed on my dose of methadone. Two days before I left, they gave me, they took me off the meth and they put me on oral buprenorphine, subutex, because that's a lower dose than methadone again. They got, they're trying to titrate you down to this low dose and then put you onto this injection. So I've gone down, I'm doing my heroin rattle on, but the heroin and the detox of the meth wasn't as bad as it would be if I was at home doing it because I was out of it anyway with this illness. I couldn't tell the fucking difference with <laughs> sepsis, you know, pleurisy. Clucking. Clucking. I could, it was all fucking wood. So I just said, yeah, whatever. And I'd done it. I had the, the uh, oral subutex for the day. And then the day I got released, I had to go to this drug clinic and I had this injection in my stomach. And, it, and this injection is called? Buvidal, B-U-V-I-D-A-L. It's not shouted about enough, mate, honestly. I've never heard of it. It's a, Exactly, and it's fucking disgusting, and that's the fact. When I done that Lad Bible interview, I had people from Scotland, people from Middlesbrough, Newcastle, Brighton, Newport, everywhere. Newport, Isle of Wight, not Newport, Wales. Everywhere, you know? How do I get on this injection? I want to change my life. Sorry, mate, your country don't fund it. That's what I have to say. How sad is that? What actually is Bouvardal? It's a game changer, mate. Honestly, it's there, right, for you to be free as an addict, to get you clean and to get you free. You don't have to pick up your methadone script every day. You don't have to pick up your Subutex script every day from the chemist. This is something you take once a month, okay? And you can either take it to stop being ill or stop using. I use mine now. I, I used it originally because I wanted to not be ill and I wanted to get off it properly. I use it now as a safety net. I use it just in case I do have that fall because I think about heroin all the time. It's just something, it's an addiction I think of all the time, but I learned to deal with it in ways now that I know I can deal with it. Um, I will be, I will come off Bouvardal. I'm still on it at the moment. Um, I'm too scared. I've seen people rush it, rush off, is he? I've seen people, come on, boo, without eight months' time. I'm off it. I'm Cullen. I'm off it. They're back on heroin now. I'm too scared to break something that's already fixed. Do you know what I mean? And you don't want to be that person ever again, dear. No. And look what I've achieved on it. Mm. Well, I want to, I'm, I'm, we're going to move on to your achievements. Just Bouvardal, because I'm, yeah, I can't believe the, the effects it has. Yeah. And, it, and it has had. So you've had 36 injections from the time you went clean to now. Yeah. Three years, one a month. So the first injection that you had, how did that make you feel? Was it an instant, I'm not withdrawing anymore? No. Um, no, because obviously my dosage of heroin and methadone was quite a big and- So th did, this did you is, whittle that down? Yeah, but not greatly. Like you don't notice it. And I, I didn't notice it because I was already clucking for fucking two weeks in the hospital. Do you see what I mean? So I've gone on to this low dose. I think the problems I had with Bouvardal was reality, was my mental health, was patterns of behavior. When me and my missus, when we moved from our flat to our house, she'd still drive to the flat sometimes, just on autopilot. Mm. If you do something every day, for 10 years, you go out, you shoplift, you sell the stuff, you buy the drugs, you make the foil, you smoke a fag, 
you burn the fag for the ash, you put it on the foil, you run the lines, and you do that again every single day, it's fucking hard to just have an injection once a month and not have that daily fix. It's like, well, this is gonna, this is gonna be okay now. I'm not gonna feel ill tomorrow, I'm gonna feel ill the next day. You know, a lot of it is that pattern of behavior. It's, it's doing, it's the, it's the doing, it's the chase. It's not just taking, it's, it's the, the pattern of behavior, what we do, being on autopilot, you know, of doing those physical things. Um, that was massive for me, thinking that, you know, and, and addicts will relate to me when I say this, but, you know, having a warm sugary cup of tea in the morning, once you have your mess, so it all comes up and you have that, that glow for an hour or two, and then you start to gouge. You know, you, you don't have that with Bouvidal. It's things like that that are, that, that are hard to uh, get your head around and adjust to. I think next year will be the year I will be off everything. But at the moment, the reason I'm still on it is not because of worrying what, what it'll be off when I come on. It's just worrying if I did ever have that fuck up, that if I took it, it, it just wouldn't have the effect. It's that safety net for me. Yes, yeah, incredible. I mean, sitting opposite you for the, the last few hours and you've... I mean, you've structured your whole story perfectly. You've been fluent, completely on the ball. You've not lost track. You've not lost your trail of thought. You've presented yourself excellently. It's clearly yeah. working because you are fully functional. Yeah. And yeah. no cluck, no agitation. No, no. But like when I, like when I first started, it was a time. Um, I'd say about, I was on a lower dose. I'm a big guy. And there's, People on a bigger dose. I ain't on the highest dose, but I was on the lowest dose, the 96. And towards the end of the month, I was getting like fucking really aggy, sweaty. And I just, I just felt like it wasn't working for me. I was thinking about gear. Although I knew I wouldn't have took it. Mm. It was, I know a couple of lines would fix this. So I bought um, Subutex off someone off the streets. And I was using the Subutex the last two, three days to tie me over. Because it's the same thing, but it's in an oral form at a, a lower dose. But now when I got that tackled, I'm perfect, mate. I'm gravy like it's, and it's working fine for me now. And it is a game changer. And I think those people who want to come off heroin, um, Bouvardal is the way forward. There's a lot of people it's not gonna work for. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a silver bullet. It's, I, I'm not gonna sit like, the, like I, so, I mean, I do a lot of talks for the company. I go to Birmingham, Manchester, London, speaking to services and prison services, telling them, invest in Bouvardal. This will save you a lot of money in the long run. It's a game changer. Yeah, but I'm not going to sit there and say, this is, the, this is a silver bullet. Let's, let, let's round up every heroin addict mm. and jab it in them. Because that's not the case. You've got to have that structure and support. And uh, in Cardiff, where I work in services, we've got great structure and support and peer, a peer force. We've got a, a culture in Cardiff where we are trusting and giving more responsibility to the drug users who are willing to change their lives. And we, you know, we, we pay them for their time, volunteer work and everything. They need some sort of structure and stability in it as well. If, if, if I'm on the streets and they said, right, you're going on Boobadal, Imagine giving some guy, right, who's living in the fucking street, he's got no one, yeah, yeah right, a fucking boo for that injection. He'd want to kill himself. 
He, he wouldn't want to be sober on the streets. He's going to want to take drugs. If I'm on the streets, I want to take fucking drugs to mask this problem. You know, it's hard out there. It's cold out there. Mm. You look down out there. You're treated like shit out there. No one really cares out there. No one really cares out there. So you've got to be careful who you give Boobadol to. Another thing we're seeing a lot of now is a lot of people, they've tackled their heroin addiction with Boobadol. So they feel like they can have a treat with a crack. Ah, oh, yeah, I've tackled my heroin. I only smoke crack now. But their crack use is 10 times as worse because mm. they've got the money for it. Or they go on to Valiums instead of heroin to come down. You see, I was the perfect example. Do you know why? Because I told you earlier on, I wouldn't smoke crack on its own. Crack made me weird. This is me. Your normal addict, if he's got, like crack and heroin come hand in hand, yeah? If he's got 200 quid, he'll buy 10 whites and two brown. The 10 whites are the buzz, the crack, and then the two browns at the end to make him feel bad and to come down. Me, I was 10 brown, two whites. Nice little two pipes, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and then I'm just flat out on the gear, mm. smoking myself into oblivion, that was me. I know some people, they only got 20 quid, they've got a heroin habit. And they'll buy crack instead. And then they'll smoke it. They'll buy, oh, I'm clucking. And you think, because people just, the crack is so strong. Crack was, it gave, it, it wasn't nice to me. I was a weirdo on it. Hmm. Roly poly central, you know? So I was like this. As soon as I blew that out, I'm picking up my foil and I'm smoking the heroin to come down. People used to say, what's the point in you buying crack? You couldn't mm. even enjoy the buzz. But my, my enjoyment was just the taste, the ears ringing, the blowing out, but I don't want to have the come down date, so I'll go into that. So once I tackled my heroin addiction with the Boobadal, I was never going to take crack without heroin. You're mad. So I killed, I killed two birds with one stone with Boobadal. Some people are that 10 whites, one brown, mm. or white before my fucking fix. So if they tackle their heroin problem, they're still gonna smoke crack. If you find someone who is like me, who, you know, crack really was just a treat. They can only smoke crack if they got something like heroin to come down with, then get them on Boobadol. But if they are fiend for crack one way or another, I wouldn't even bother with a Boobadol. Well, I shouldn't say don't bother with a Boobadol because it's also a harm reduction tool. It's also saving lives because you can't overdose off crack, but you can overdose off heroin. And if you tackle your heroin problem with Boobadal, then you're saving lives. So there is that aspect to it as well. You know, they might be, a, 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 you know, he might be smoking crack, but we know he's not going to die. So there's all different things you've got to think of when giving Boobadal to someone. Yeah, certainly recommending it. Uh, so I'd imagine a lot of people that want to, I'd imagine a lot of people that are addicts want to be clean. They don't want to be addicts. They don't yeah. like who they are. They're not in a good place. They're not having a good time. And the fear of becoming clean is becoming clean. It's that process, the cluck, the withdrawal, the tripping out, the cold turkey. Yeah. So with Bouvardol, does that eliminate or at least reduce the cold turkey? Yeah, it reduces it massively. Because that's going to scare a lot of people to, to come back. So I'd love to go clean, but there's no way I can be fucking locked in a room tripping out. So, so the biggest shock and surprise for me and, and anyone else who's been on it is 
the lack of withdrawal. And you feel like you're cheating. Mm. You're like, nah, it's going to come. It's coming through the post any day now. And it, it never comes. It's that's, mad. That's unreal. In your mind, are you, oh, I know that you've obviously, you're using Bouvardol. Are you clean in your own 100%. head? 100%. So you're clean. Mate, mate, like, listen, this is our culture. You know what I'm this saying? Is, yeah, 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 yeah. When, yeah. I and like, when you look at 12, I'm saying like 12 steps, you could be on fucking sertraline and you're not clean. Mm. You know, it's mm. you, you're taking something. I think we need to get away from that culture. I totally agree. People, there's medication out there, and I don't agree with the pharma some pharmaceutical companies, but, you know, my, 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 my missus kid, he's autistic. He takes melatonin in the night to sleep. He needs that. Mm. It doesn't make him a druggie. You know, why, you know, the culture of calling someone a junkie. Yeah. Look at Maggie. She's 80 years old. She don't have to go behind the fucking glass, fucking a window pane to drink her fucking morphine, but she got morphine for a bad back. Mm. She's not a junkie though. Mm. You know, someone who's going through chemotherapy, someone who's, you know, who's antipsychotics because they're, they're going through psychosis. You know, the, the, the one who's depressed, who's on antidepressants. It's necessary sometimes. And I don't see why everything else in life is all, it's all gone through this progression, haven't it? You know, you can be who you want, mm. you know, and so many things have been accepted now, but not drug addiction, especially heroin. It's still, it, it's still down there as the stigma, you know, addiction. I think gambling and things like that have come a long, long way, you know? But I think with heroin, you know, yeah, well, you're on methadone. Oh, you're still a junkie. I agree. Methadone is a farce and, you know, it, it, it never helped me. But that's, who am I to say it didn't work for someone else and someone takes their methadone and they've never touched heroin since. I guarantee there's people out there that's done it for. I, I, I don't feel like I'm on drugs. I've never been so ambitious in my life. I've never been so calmer. I'll say calmer because I'm still quite wild. Um, I've never been so content in life. I'm a different person. I, 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 and, and that's down to Bouvardal. So let me just recap. We go good, bad, and ugly. Let me just re recap the bad and the ugly. Okay. So before Bouvardal, before you had your spiritual awakening, and all that devastation that, that, that come with it, that crescendo at the end, you was out thieving, cheating, deceiving, robbing, lying, behaving like someone you don't like or any normal human being wouldn't like. You were skinny as a rake, you were covered in scabs, you was a con man, that's who you were. Mm. That's what you were doing when you had that shit in your system. Yeah. So that's what you were doing. That's the bad and the ugly. Now, now let's talk about the good because there's now plenty of that. There's good in abundance now. So what is Colour Mace doing now? What are you doing now, now that that shit, <laughs> now that that shit isn't in you dictating what you do? Um, I'm doing all I can really. I'd like to, I, know, I think I work seven days a week. I don't have a fucking day off really. Um, talk about your, your work. Yeah, so, because you didn't hold down a job before, did you? No, never, never <laughs> did, mate. Like or a successful business. More CVs and shit. Like you, you know, those first couple of years, it was like two months here, 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 and then it was a gap. Mm. There was nothing, and I've realised now that that gap 
in the field I work in is lived experience. Mm. That's my experience. That gap there is what I bring to the table in my job now. Um, so yeah, with, with, I, I'm three, four months into my, uh, my recovery, let's say. I'm hanging around with my dad. I'm going to work with my dad because I realized that if I hang around with good people, positive people, I'll probably think positive as well. When I first got clean, I thought I was going to go back to writing music. I thought I was going to write everything that I've been through into music. And one, and one day someone asked me to uh, do a video of some of my low times in life. And I'd done this video and it, it, it went all over Facebook, locally, let's say, you know, in a couple thousand shares, hundreds of messages, people, wow, I can't, I didn't realize it was that bad. Or I remember you and thanks for that. I needed to hear that. And it made me feel good. And I obviously made some other people feel good with it. So I thought, oh, something there, maybe I could do something there. And I kept it on the back burner. At the same time, it's, it's mad. And this is what people in addiction and people going through shit need to realize. You know, when you're, my dad, right? I used to say, why don't you just stop and things will happen for you? And I used to say, but life's shit. Like, I, I, you know, I got a criminal, I'm not going to get a job. He said, listen, it will come. Just get clean. One thing at a time, it will come. And you know what? Once you take that first, it all came for me at the same time. Mm. So I guess, uh, I guess we contacted by this woman, Rondine, yeah, who's someone who's an ex-smoker herself. She's done 10 years in, in a Kenyan prison. I've done a podcast with her. Uh, she's now the head of Gwent Services, which is like one region in Wales. She's like the manager now. She smashes it. She re rings me up. She says, look, this Boobadal's a new thing. You're one of the new ones on there. Would you like to do a, a peer review? We'll pay you for your time. And basically, you just kind of come up with a questionnaire to ask all the new patients how they found it. Was it good? Was it bad? Was it not? In the hope that we can get more funding from Welsh government to carry it on for another three years. I got involved in it. The reason I got involved in it at the time was because I still had that tag on and that fucking suspended sentence. And I thought if I start doing something positive, I can go to court. Because think, you know, I still got a court date. I'm in hospital dying. When I guess out, I think... I genuinely want to change now. There's no fucking way I'm going back on the landing because mm. they could put me back into that frame of mind. And, and, and fair play, you know, I tried to do a couple of things and when I went back to court, they could see the change in me. And they always remanded me. They always sent me down and, 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 and they could see mercy and they gave me mercy. They could clearly see I was, I was serious this time. So I done this, this survey, got involved in the volunteer and I loved it. I felt I had a lot to give. I was, it was something that I, I knew a lot about uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I realized that you know, I, I could do something here. This woman, Rondine, actually gave me the belief that I could work with everything I've done. I could be trusted with, you know, having a wage packet, you know, paying tax and mm. all these things that I thought was not possible. So, um, yeah. It all came to a kind of a head where I kind of decided then with two other young lads who were really looking up to what I was doing and changing my life around uh, that I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to start a podcast, you know, through that fucking, uh, that video I done. Because he said to me, the lad, he went, listen, you don't really want to be a fucking, you don't want to be a fucking MC. 
you want to you want to write you, you know you want to talk talk your experiences so i started a podcast called the central club there's it very week that i launched that i was going to do this podcast ron dean said there's a job going in your city of cardiff as a service rep someone who is going to talk about lived experience co-production you will hold services accountable in your city to make sure that they have people with lived experience like yourself having their say in the services to make them better i thought that's fucking me went for the job first week of launch of central club i had a phone call you've got the job so now what i do now is i'm a, I'm a drug worker uh, i've been doing it for the last two and a half years in the city i love the city i i i run ragged you know most of the users know me through either prison or using with them and you know i'm helping a lot of people you know i'm, I'm helping services be, get better you know by my experience and they i'm someone who basically champions and platforms the voices that are unheard because we know how services should be run more than people who have just come into a job who have no experience so that's what i do there and then of course the central club i wanted to do a podcast i wanted to you know once i was an addict for so long i was always perceived as a, a junkie once a junkie always a junkie he might be clean now but in 10 in in two weeks time he's going to be a smackhead in a year's time he's going to relapse mark my words he won't last you know same with cheats were you cheating once a cheat always a cheat i don't think that's true i think you can turn your life around uh and and what i saw was in in in, in the media world was people like tommy robinson people like let's give an example craig bellamy a football player you know these people who they've got they've got names they've got reputations they've got you know stuff stuck to them that people perceive or stigmatize the same way i feel stigmatized other people feel stigmatized and what i wanted to do as a podcast was not only inspire and champion recovery but also change the perceptions and ideas of other people in the public eye and that's where the central club kind of came from i mean i know that there's there's so much more that we can say but that's the central podcast inspired me so i want anyone that watches this i encourage you to go and like and subscribe to Cullen's page as well. You can find him on Instagram, Cullen Mace or The Central Club, and also his YouTube channel. Uh, I'll certainly be watching them uh, more regularly. So the podcast is great. And the charity work, you're running with that solid? Yeah, yeah, and I'm, 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 I'm doing well with that. I, I, I would like to eventually kind of incorporate the podcast and the charity work, but charities are so PC. I might have to go and do my own thing, you know? I feel like sometimes they, they, they're too out of touch or they have to toe the line a bit too much. Addiction ain't that. Addiction is chaotic. Addiction is chaos. So it needs to be replicated in services, I think. And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I've ticked so many boxes off these last three years. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Speaking at, at, at police headquarters in front of police officers who have kicked down my door, arrested me, hated me. You know, going into unis and speaking to people. I'm going to HMP style next week. I'm going into fucking prison, man. I can't fucking wait, like, you know, but being able to do these things that I never, ever thought I could do, that people in addiction need to realize is a possibility for them as well. Mm. They, they're crying out for people like us, Lee. They're crying out more than ever. 
more than ever, they want lived experience. They want that. So it's, it's definitely out there for people, people to see. I know that we could go on and on and on. And I'd really like to spend another time talking about your achievements from, from becoming clean. And yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, we yeah. can meet up and do a part two and we can take it, we can take it from this point and move it forward. But I think that I think the podcast will inspire a lot of people and let people know that they're not on their own. They're not alone. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, walk, you're walking, talking, living proof that you can change if you want to change. And also, don't just don't just change, make a change. You are helping the masses out there. It's almost That's like it. you've become addicted to helping people now. Yeah. You've become addicted to being a heartful human being. Well, that's it. Like, of course, people say to me, I can't believe it's not just the fact you've changed your life, but you're actually helping people. I could have easily have just got off drugs, just sat in a fucking bedroom and played Xbox for the rest of my life. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make a difference and be that change, like you just said. And I just want to let people know, like, you know, I never thought I'd ever have a fucking decent missus and a family and, and a old friends and a network and meet people who are respected and... You know, I don't want to say the word worship, but they're idolized. They're inspiring people. And I'm able to meet these people. And yeah, like, I, I just never thought it. Like, and Colin, yeah. you've become that person. Yeah. You are now the inspiration. And that's what you've got to take to bed with you every single yeah. night. In fact, when you wake up, when you're sipping your cup of ambition, you've also got to remind yourself, I'm now an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Every, I agree. Like, that, that's, I your, agree. That, that's your job now. Yeah which you're doing extremely well. Oh, mate. Are you going to get me crying? In <laughs> on that note, Liam, we're going to do this again. I'm going to come on your. You're going to come on the central club. We're going to, yeah. this like, again, there's a lot of, our stories are extensive. Everyone, everyone got a story, haven't they? You know, and, and when I was watching, uh, listening to your story on James English, there was a lot there that I related to. Mm. And I just wanted, I just wanted, would like to take my angle on it, you know, and see where it goes with you as well. I would really like to get you on 100%. So, and yeah, thank you for having me down, mate. Honestly, it's been a real pleasure. Honestly, like I, like I said, I've done Lad Bible. I've done one podcast with a friend who's local. I haven't done podcasts. I'm so glad that I was able to come and share my story with you. Yeah, I'm delighted you did as well. I really, uh, I feel this is a good exchange, and yeah, I feel full, uh, and I feel I feel inspired. Yeah, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you do, mate. I'm glad you do. Let's go and get some food. I'm fucking starving. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs>